This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. We're live. Welcome. Episode 53 of In Class with Carr, Dr. Gray Carr. How you doing, Mr. Hunter? Listen, I'm sleepy. Uh, had me up at 4 o'clock this morning finishing WandaVision. Uh, I was... Oh. <sighs> so... What'd you so, think? Well, well, you had me with the hex. Because I stopped after she threw Homegirl, after she threw Tiana Paris through the through the wall, the My house. Sister. So I was like, no. Nah. Marvel slash Photon slash we don't know. Yeah, what you're not going to do is throw a black woman through the wall. So I had a problem with that. So I had to put it down <laughs> for a minute. You know, there's, yeah, a, stop, yeah, the yeah. you know, there's a lot of, of violence towards our psyche in, in the world. And I got to protect this by all means, you know. You know, so, that's right. So so I came back four o'clock this morning. I got up. I said, let me finish this because he talked about the hex and I didn't know what he was talking about. I got a sense of it. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, it's like the Matrix. And then I was thinking about the need to protect yourself from trauma and the need for us to to escape the everyday stress of just being black. And in Wanda's case, you know, all of the pain and suffering and blah, blah, blah. But I think about the Matrix. The Matrix, that story originally uh, crafted by a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think well, about brothers. Uh, she took them to court, right? Yes, she did. Yeah. And and then I'm thinking about coming the number two America and so many people are enjoying it. And I was like, we should enjoy it. We oh, should Lord. have something to enjoy. We deserve joy. We're human in the world. Yes. So so that that was my uh issue. now uh oh by the way. I don't, well, we should, we should, we should talk about that for five seconds, but I will say this, if nothing else about coming to America too, out of that whole cast, I don't think there was anybody who looked like they were enjoying themselves more than our brother, Wesley Snipes. So I just want to say to that brother, brother, I know it's been a long road, but as the man who created Amun Ra Film Productions and who made the documentary on my Jackman, the great John Henry Clark, I was there at Town Hall when they debuted that film and you sent Larry Fishburne and, and, and Ralph Carter out because you were filming. I guess it was one the, the fat final blade. But as somebody who stood for black people and who paid the price, I was so glad to see that brother enjoying himself. <laughs> and he ripped it. So anyway, I just wanted to say that if nothing else. Uh, he ripped it. Leslie Jones ripped it. Tiana Taylor ripped it. I mean, just the, the little moments, you know. The little moments, right? Yeah. Ruth E. Carter ripped it. Oscar award winning hey. costume. She uh, had him dressed, didn't she? The dance. I mean, yo. Okay. <laughs> had him teaching. Come on. Had him teaching. You know, I mean, it's interesting because they're layered texts, and we, we maybe we could do a devote a whole uh, time. And, and if, by the way, thanks for everybody who's continued to sign up on narrative. One of the value added is over there, we have more time to do more research, um, to, to, to put more things in, to grab more people into the conversation and layer things out. There, there's a whole conversation to be had since you mentioned Ruth, Ruth Carter on her choices for even the costumes. That isn't just random. I mean, she she does deep dives. So you see the combinations from various regions of Africa, the, the kind of remixings and glosses of things that didn't exist anywhere in Africa. What you saw in Black Panther, you see in Coming to America. Completely different genres, completely different. But in terms of that constant, oh, no, that's sister. Yeah. That's just awesome. no joke. <laughs> Listen, and, and even on that springboard, again, and thank you for thanking people, because narrative oh, is yes. everything. This conversation we're having about Marvel and this comic book world and Wesley Snipes. If, if Wesley had narrative, 
20 years ago, oh. Marvel would have a problem right now. And Disney would have a problem right would now. Would have a huge problem. And In I, fact, yeah. I knew a brother who was a, a, a writer. He worked at the Museum of uh, American History. When the Smithsonian's were open, I would go down there. I, I usually go down a couple of times a week to the various museums. And I started, the brother saw me with a comic book shirt on. He said, oh, you like, I said, yeah, we started talking. Turns out he was a writer, and he and he confirmed for me many of the missing pieces of the backstory of when Marvel went bankrupt. And there are a couple of good books on the subject. I, I'll hesitate, I won't go back there and look for them. But uh, the Marvel Wars, uh, DC, of course, led out with the films uh, with Superman, things like that. They Marvel wasn't making no money. They had they had failed. They had some old corny Captain America TV. They had the cartoons. They were selling off characters, minor characters, and of course, in the Marvel mind, in that mind, in the eighties, you know, you're talking about more minor characters being black. Wesley Snipes had gotten the rights to Blade. Wesley Snipes' Blade created the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Don't sleep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, in terms of the debt we owe to Wesley Snipes, put that on the register as well. But I just wanted to say it because you, as you begin to... No, I mean, this is, we, you know. every week we're putting another piece to this. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're figuring out, putting another thread, sewing another piece of this quilt together. And, you know, what I'm coming to the conclusion is that, you know, we absolutely need our own spaces, but we've no done place. this. And if we could just all gather it. So, yeah, sign up for narrative. Uh, we have now until the end of the month to get uh, this one year uh, subscription is going to go up and it's going to be a monthly uh, option. But this is the building process. I was talking with Uraeus, uh, one of the chief architects, and we were talking about having a comic book, graphic novel, cartoon space network, the narrative and attracting some of this great talent that's out there right now trying to, you know, get people to green green light, green light their projects. People making decisions about whether or not you have value. People making decisions about whether this is good. Who can't do what you do? Who can't do what we do? Right. They're making. They're sitting in the seat to make a decision. This is going to be an open format, and I love. I love that there's going to be so many creatives coming in, including Urias himself, who is a comic book oh. giant. So, so yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for participating and and rolling up your sleeves, everyone, and Prof, of course, Dr. Carr. No, um, I'm glad to be part of the family. This is the space. Y'all got me now going back to what I was doing before I was so rudely interrupted because these learning spaces, I mean, you know, these learning spaces and, you know, we both know that, of course, Prof. Um, you know, the, the, the university is important, you know, but it's not the answer. K-12 is, is foundational, but it's not the answer. As we see, I was reading some stuff this uh, week, according to FOSFA, you know, the financial aid forms, everybody has to sign out to, to fill out, to go to college, get their financial aid and, you know, qualify kind of thing. The numbers for our people, our young people who are in the lower socioeconomic brackets are down by as much as 15% for the fall. And what that's signaling to some of the folk is that this, we're beginning to see the first echoes of this crater that we entered a year ago this month. And we don't know the implications, but in the space, what did we do? We said, you know, you said, well, you know, let's start having this conversation openly. And it seems that, as in many cases, crisis has revealed to us our capability. And so what you're building with narrative is really a portal that allows folk to finally get away from the idea that these institutions have control over our learning. We have control over our learning. And so our young people, you know, if, if you're going to take a so-called gap year, if you don't have the money to go to college, if you don't know what's going to happen in the fall, again, come on with us. Come on with us. It's, it can do nothing but strengthen your skills. 
and and give you uh, fill in some of the blanks. You know, no I mean, we're looking, at, we're looking at teachers teaching slavery with some ridiculous assignments. Got black kids, you know, being uh, playing pretending to be slaves. Write a letter to your African. Fa- I mean, we got some ridiculous, racist, horrific, traumatic things happening in our school system. And not to mention all of the kids that are. We talked about this briefly last week. Both of us, they wanted to give us Ritalin. Not to mention, you know, the classification of special education, you know, putting our young boys in particular in special ed, suspending them at higher rates, you know, all of these things, even in a pandemic, you know, we're at a disadvantage. But it's interesting, um, because of narrative, I had a conversation last night with Dr. Linda Perkins, who is, you know, she does a lot of work around women's studies. But there was a question that was dropped either on Twitter or in the comments here about you know, we've talked Carter G. Woodson last month because, you know, Black History Month, Father Black History Month. Uh, W.B. Du Bois first to graduate with a Ph.D. from Harvard. And somebody said, how were Black people able to get Ph.D.s in the 1800s, in the early 1900s? And having this conversation last night with Dr. Um, Linda Perkins, I was like, wow, um, many of these abolitionists and Quakers were willing to send Black people, as long as it was a magical Negro, Exactly. There, there's the key. And you said it. Yeah. You know, kind of as you know, and, and and they needed somebody to teach black children, but you could never teach in a white school. You could never. And there's, and there's the second part of the key. You just put the two right. keys together. And I was like, that makes perfect sense. So, you know, you're talking about this, this dip right now, this crater in education. Black people getting degrees in ridiculous numbers, particularly black women in yeah. the early 1900s in this country. But we couldn't earn money. We couldn't, and many of the black men didn't even go into it because you would make more money as a Pullman porter than you would as a teacher. And yet there was still, you know, so I thought this would be an interesting, you know, she brought up Greener, you know, who was the first to get, I think. Really? A- Greener, you gonna, yeah. I'm going to fight this urge. Let me go, I'm going to sit no, right don't, here. Don't do go it. Get, on Richard T. Oh. Greener, there's one good book called Uncompromised a- Activist that talks about Richard Greener. He's also written up in, uh, and I'm looking right at it, uh, William J. Simmons did a huge book in 1887 called Men of Mark. And did we talk, we talked about Greener, didn't we? We did, we did. But then that, okay. led, me, that led me down a rabbit hole because I was like, okay, I knew him. You know, we, Carter G. Woodson, we got W.B. Du Bois. And then she dropped this name, Octavius Cato. Oh, before we go to Octavius Cato, because we're going to, I just want to mention, and this is for the folks who are on the narrative side and continue to go on the narrative side. When you go on the narrative side, look for Karen and I's conversation on Dorothy Porter Wesley, the librarian, because in that conversation, we talk about one of her foremothers in the craft of cultivating information science. That woman's name was Belle DaCosta Green. Belle DaCosta Green was the librarian and the acquisitions person for J.P. Morgan's personal library, which was one of the greatest in the world, and it's now at the J.P. Morgan Museum. Belle DaCosta Green changed her name after her South Carolina-born father left her mother, and his name was Richard Greener. No more. Go to narrative. You'll get when when you heard when you when she mentioned uh, Richard Green Richard Greener, who helped raise the money for Grant's tomb. We had Karen. I had that conversation. So that's one of the things you get when you go on the other side. Oh wait, let me let me write that down. No, go on the side. It's already there with the books. An, anum, uh, an illuminated life is the life of Belle DaCosta Green, the daughter of Richard Greener, the foremother of Dorothy Porter Wesley, and all those black women that kept those libraries alive to this day. I just wanted to pause before we get into Octavius Ketter, who is a contemporary of Richard Greener. So anyway, yeah. yeah. And, and, and a Philly, you know, because you, you got a, a special love for Philly, and then I'm starting Oh, to- yeah. And a love for Cato. Yeah. 
No, it's cattle. Okay, Octavius Cattle. And and we're starting to see also, you know, uh, Oberland, like there were these institutions that funneled our folk into this space. And there was a high level of education and a respect for it. She was talking about how Mary McLeod Bethune, the whole town showed up to send her off. And, value, and, and we obviously do value it. So I'm, I'm saying that to say narrative has not just, I knew this in my heart, proven that people thirst for knowledge. And if they get it, and they get that clean glass, they can't go back. And we're just gonna we're gonna keep pouring the water. And I'm just no question. And, we make, and they, they they should make Jim Kenny, who is the mayor of Philadelphia now. He was on city council in 2003. He first heard the name Octavius Cato. And you know Jim Kenny, Philadelphian, South Philly. You think Rocky, all that stuff that people who don't know anything about black people in Philadelphia and watch Rocky. You know, you can't beat black people in the boxing ring. So you make up a boxing champion and they made a whole ass statue of Rocky and stuck him in front of the damn Philly. Really, he was at the top of the steps of the Philadelphia Museum of Art for years. And then they moved him down. But it's like how you make a statue of a fake boxer and you ain't got no statue of a real heavyweight champion who was Philadelphia. Well, by way of Philadelphia, Joe Frazier, no Joe Frazier statue, but a a, a Rocky uh, statue anyway. And, and Philadelphia, by the way, has over 1,700 statues. It's known as the city of statues. And until Octavius Cato, there wasn't one dedicated to a black person. So at any rate, they had a Rocky statue, a fake man. Anyway, I mentioned all that to say this. Jim Kenny, South Philly, and, you know, shout out to uh, Michael B. Jordan and all the cats who come together, who came together. Because now Creed, of course, is the remixed Philadelphia. You see the young boys on their bikes riding around of Michael B. Jordan and then circling around. So at some point, Rocky got to pass the baton. I mean, unless they're going to have Ghost Rocky, which they maybe could. <laughs> but, you know, but but at any rate, Michael B. Jordan seems to have it now. You know, so, so anyway, I just want to mention this. Uh, Jim Kenny, who is from South Philly, uh, is now the mayor. When he was on city council in 2003, he heard the name Octavius Cattle for the first time. He said, how did I grow up in Philadelphia and not know this name? So he said, we got to do something. We got to get a memorial. And of course, he wasn't the first one. Black people have been calling for it for years. Long story short, they eventually did a statue. And there's a statue of Octavius Cato now, uh, the statue at City Hall, which was created by a black sculptor. And we're going to talk about that brother as well. The young brother, um, uh, Brantley Cadet, who did the statue of, uh, of Octavius Cato. And it is magnificent. It is. I mean, I, this brother, um, I think about the great Ed Dwight. Who was you know the master sculptor of course so many of his things are around the country but anyway i just wanted to mention that because cattle is not taught even in philadelphia but 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 go on karen i mean when when she mentioned cattle why did that what what's what, what why did he just you know, why'd you zero in on him because i think you know again every week we are putting pieces together and foundationally there's been such an assault on you know i'm questioning everything about education i'm like what are we learning why are we learning this what are we sending our children to school to actually understand about us and you know being in this largest africana studies class in the world it it allows me now to see everything through a different lens and i'm I, i can't tell you how grateful i am but even the founding like these people were able to go get master degrees. Ah, uh, yes. They they were not just, you know, degree holders. I think uh, Cotto was a great athlete, you know, Maybe. and we talk about, you know, Paul Robeson, great athlete, great singer, great thespian, great, brilliant mind. Black people didn't have the, the luxury to not explore all aspects of themselves. And they got to do it through because of segregation, primarily. They didn't want us anywhere near their children. Nope teach their children right 
And that allowed us to have some great schools like Dunbar that allowed us to, to spring forth some great minds because Cato and Greener inspired a whole generation of brilliant minds. And I'm just like, and I feel like Dr. Greg Carr is going to do the same. So I, I uh, Professor Ken, our team is going to do the same because that's the interesting thing, isn't it? And, and uh, the, these are individuals whose names we call, but none of them, absolutely none of them exist in a vacuum. So when you said magical Negroes, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons why as we struggled mightily to see if we could craft an Africana studies lens, once again, oh, no, 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 I don't want to cut you off because I didn't Not at all. No, this is a conversation. This is the beautiful yeah. part. Um, she also was saying like the gener two generations after that, people started going to these, and we've talked about it briefly. There's some contemporaries of yours who've gone to Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and they think that they're, they're special. Sure. And, and Dr. Perkins said they're not special. Matter of fact, they're not even, they couldn't hold greener cattle, McLeod, Bethune. They couldn't hold their water. <laughs> There's a whole kind of cadre of black elites. And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that separation thing, but there are a whole lot of people who think that they're so much smarter than everyone and they're better than everyone. But there were people for whom they wouldn't be in those situations without folk that came out of bondage. That's right. Or, and, and what was interesting about Cato, I was wondering, like, how did this man, what, how was he raised in South Carolina and wasn't in bondage? How was he born free in the 1820s in South Carolina as a black person? Like, I, I needed to know more. So <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about him. Let's talk about him. But before we do, well, no, no, no. As we do, as we, and this, that's the beautiful thing of this space, this conversation. If we don't do anything else, and we're doing so much more than this, but if we don't do anything else, exploding the mythology of individual Negro exceptionalism. That's got to go. That has got to go. We both know, and everybody in this room knows people who were smarter, who were quick on their feet, who were more astute than probably any of us who are in this room right now, who because uh, of the structure of the society we live in, that social structure, who they are believed to be to other people, didn't have the space to develop their full human potential. I don't say didn't have an opportunity, didn't have a chance, because even those words, opportunity and chance, speak to the aspirations and dreams of a social structure that has never had group dreams for us other than work, meaning enslavement and after, and staying in the social order in our strata. So you can tolerate one or two Negroes, but what you can't tolerate is a mass of them. So there were no gifts and there have been no gifts given our people. So when Octavius Cattle comes along, um, you know, who comes out of South Carolina, whose parents move him out of South Carolina because, you know, his mother's mother, Fanny, was enslaved in South Carolina, but the the uh, European who had her captive uh, left in his will that she would be freed upon her death, and Fanny had a daughter, Mary, who appears in the census uh, as, uh, quote-unquote, mulatto, meaning we, we're not sure who her father was, very strong possibility that her father was in fact uh, the enslaver, is the mother of uh, uh, of uh, Octavius Cato's, uh, well, this is the, actually, no, this is the auntie of Octavius Cato's uh, father. Her His father, William, is born, quote unquote, free, 1810. Now, that's not unheard of in South Carolina. They were in Charleston, because again, his grandmother was freed upon death of the enslaver, which suggests a different, a, a, 
uh, um, the sexual relationship. Let's just put it clinically. And we know that, you know, blacks and whites are not cats and dogs. In other words, not two different species. And the most frequent uh, relationship, and these aren't love affairs for those folks who want to make Jeff Thomas Jefferson into something other than a rapist. Um, these are, you know, in other words, let's let's fast forward to where we are 2021. Look at Title IX. I mean, you know, if you are in a position of authority and you have sex with a subordinate, quote, quote unquote, legally by legal definition, that by definition is not consensual in the same way. Look at it. You talk about talk to Title IX folk who work at universities, talk, you know, people on the job. You talk about Title VII with plumb discrimination. You talk about sexual harassment. So now take that, put it on super steroids, and that's enslavement. You the cat who owns the plantation, you're the woman who is enslaved and y'all had sex. How is that a love affair? Let's not, let's not even get into that, okay? Let's be clear. Let's just, just erase that because that's how you get stuff like scandal. Anyway, you know, shout out to those who want to reimagine oh. oppression as love affairs. You know, that's that's Stockholm syndrome. But at any rate, it's not a little love affair. You delusional. You need help. And we helping y'all. But at any rate, um, so William, the father of Octavius Caddo, is about nine years old in South Carolina, around 18, uh, 19, when he's hauled into court as a little boy because they accuse him of not being free. Because remember now, freedom is a, as we put, it's never, you ain't never free. They can always try to snatch you up. And we're going to get into that when Kato achieves uh, adulthood. Because Kato achieves adulthood by the time the family relocates to Philadelphia, then they go to Jersey for a while, come back to Philly. Uh, this is around, the, this is at the same time you have the Fugitive Slave Act, 1850. You've got the uh, Dred Scott case of 1857. And so the idea that Black people are free anywhere in this country is always tenuous. It's just like when people talk about their right to vote. You see these, uh, the white nationalists all over the country trying to make sure that you can't vote. You ain't got no rights that you can't protect. You have no rights that you can't. You see Kristen Cinema dancing down in the well of the federal legislature yesterday and putting her thumb down, telling you can't give $15 an hour while she go home and eat and has a full belly. There are no rights that you, if you don't go out there and fight for them. So anyway, so William's nine years old. He's in South Carolina. They accuse him of not being uh, not being free. He got to be enslaved. So his mama goes get a white man, Patrick McGraw, who's a white man. He come to court and testify that no, the boy is free. Had to have a white man's word. And it was good enough for him to have his freedom secured. The court said, okay, we'll take your word for it. And it's very interesting because William, uh, we don't know what his last name was before, but Patrick McCall had an enslaved African named Barbara Cattle. She had passed away. But Barbara Cattle was friends with with uh with uh with Fanny. The scholars working on this speculate that in tribute to her friend, who had been enslaved by this white man, who went and testified for the son, that's where the name Cattle comes from. It was a gloss of cattle, and young William T. Cattle, now Cattle, uh, is free. This is 1819. Now, what happens three years later? Then Mark Vesey turns up in Charleston. And by turns up, I don't mean shows up. I mean, let's overthrow slavery. One of the founders of Mother Emanuel AME Church, that same church that Dylan Roth, who's still alive, who's still alive after killing, slaughtering nine black people 
there, including uh, Brother Pinkner, who was advocating for a Denmark Vesley statue, was in the federal legislature, I'm sorry, in the state legislature in South Carolina. Uh, Denmark Vesley was a founder of what became Mother Emanuel, African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, the mother church in the South of African Methodism, the mother church itself being, uh, of course, uh, Bethel AME in Philadelphia. But at any rate, 1822, now this boy is going right into his preteen years. It's three years later. So he's about 12 years old. And now these white people in South Carolina is like, we can't trust these free Negroes. Shit. Oh, we got to be careful. Go get uh, Daniel Alexander Payne's uh, history of the AME church. Or there's a recent, more recent history of the AME church. And the name will come, come to me in a minute. That just came out last year. But at any rate, that's one of the reasons why you see free Africans in South Carolina very nervous now. You got to get the, you know, because uh, the, the South Carolina state legislature appropriates money for what becomes the Citadel, the place, yes, the Citadel, that same one is still open today. They say, because we got to worry about these slave insurrections now. And so, you know, one of the things they do is, you know, the Africans who are from South Carolina, who have connections to South Carolina, you know, we're going to ban y'all from the state. Y'all can't come back down here. Y'all can't come around here. That's why the second bishop of the AME church. A South Carolinian named Morris Brown is not buried in South Carolina. They 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 gonna put the Vesey Rebellion off on him. Whatever he's buried in Philadelphia in the same crypt with Richard and Sarah Allen. So the first bishop of the AME Church, Richard Allen and his wife Sarah, and the second bishop of the AME Church, Morris Brown, both buried in South Philly, right there off uh, South Street on Fifth at Mother Bethel in the crypt in the basement. Why is Morris Brown there? It's sharing eternity with his with his comrades because South Carolina, you can't come back down here, dude. We're going to put this vessel on you. So anyway, young Cattle was growing up in a kind of tenuous, tenuous space. What did my man Boots Riley say in, uh, in, in the coup when they released their first uh, album, Kill My Landlord, Not Yet Free, <laughs> you know, which is also a riff on the great Ogenga Odinga out of East Africa. Not Yet Free, as uh, Odinga wrote in his book, Not Yet Uhuru. Uhuru, freedom. So it's a tenuous position. And so Cato is growing up in that situation. Um, Cato eventually, you know, comes to man. Oh, sorry. Then the Nat Turner Rebellion, 1831 in, in, in Virginia. So people are like, you know, we got to crack down on these free blacks. So uh, William T. Cato marries. He and his wife uh, relocate to uh, Philadelphia. And when they come to Philadelphia, by the way, Octavius Cattle was born uh, February 22nd, 1818. 1818, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, he moved, they moved to Philadelphia in 1843. So when they moved to Philadelphia, you figure, okay, he's going to be better for you. They, they enroll him in white schools, box elementary school, there's still a box school in Philly, Lombard Street School. And then they moved to Allentown, New Jersey. It's interesting because when they moved to Allentown, New Jersey, because by the way, William is a minister. And here's where I want to pause here, uh, President Hunter, and, and, and emphasize this because it really speaks to the thread of conversation you were having the other day. That You brought that rhythm into this space. Once you have a small group of quote unquote free Negroes, and the free Negroes in this country, the first federal census was 1790. What you see is that the first federal census, I think there are about 750,000 Africans that they tally in this country. There's a fraction of them that are quote unquote free in the North. Uh, by the time you get to the census of 1830, you've got about 
two million uh, enslaved uh, Africans in this country, two million or so. Uh, there are less than 200,000 who are considered, quote unquote, free. Almost all of them in the northern states. There are a handful in New Orleans, Charleston, like of the, of the status of the Caddo's like that. Um, or what they call free people of color, many of them being the descendants of those uh, women who were raped by these white men and then they had children and they free the children or they create those spaces for them. Um, 20 years later, oh, 30 years later, 1860, uh, you got 4 million enslaved Africans in the country. How the hell did it go from 2 million to 4 million in 30 years? Because the constitution says you got to stop importing Africans after 1808, although they kept smuggling them in. If you read, uh, of course, Costello Lewis's uh, account, which, as told to uh, Zora Hurston in the book Barracoon that was published recently, we had our freshman at Howard read it. Um, the story that was first published in the Journal of Negro, uh, Journal of Negro History, because Carter Woodson helped pay for young Zora Hurston, the brilliant anthropologist, writer, novelist, uh, thinker, to go to Florida and collect uh, Casala Lewis's uh, account of how he was snuggled over here in 1860, 1861 in the Clotilda. Also read Natalie Robinson's book, The Slave Ship Clotilda, a young uh, sister professor down at Hampton who did an incredible work on this scholarship. In fact, we invited her to come to Howard after we read the book and she had we had a conversation with her and the sister who edited uh, Barracoon, by the way, which I hear commenting them trying to make into a, a film. But at any rate, so they, they told me after 1808, you can't bring boats here, over here. But they kept bringing them, but they weren't bringing them in volume. So how do you go from two million to four million in thirty years? You force these Africans to give birth, which means sisters are now balloon in value because, particularly if they're young, because you're just gonna make baby makers out of these women as they're working in the field until they damn near give birth. They give birth, get back out there in the field. Now get pregnant again, give birth, and then the brothers, you like, I don't know what you're talking about, girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, the hell. You, we want you to bust your ass, and we want sperm from you. And so this is, I mean, it, you think about the the level of depraved attitudes toward African life. That this country is not on the fringe. It's not an exception. It's not, with all due respect, we're better than this. Ain't no we, first of all. And you're not, you are not better than this. If you were better than this, you'd be telling people $15, no, $25 an hour. What the hell? If you were better than this, you weren't be passing laws trying to stop people from voting. If you were better than this, you wouldn't say, I want you to read the whole relief bill and then leave the damn chamber. Ron Johnson, Senator Johnson, you know what you're doing? You're exposing the fact that senator is not an honorific. That's just a label, brother. That's just a label. You know, as Common said, you know, <laughs> uh, diamond ain't nothing but a rock with a name. Love ain't nothing but a motion and game. Meaning what? A senator ain't nothing but a title, man. It's your character that has been revealed. You're not better than this. So they got these black women exploding, having, having all these babies. And you move from 2 million to 4 million by 1860. By 1860, of course, Octavius Cato was a man in Philadelphia. Why his father has gone back and forth, his father, his mother, they've gotten him out. They're raising the family now. They're in that so-called free status. And even though he's going to school, one of the reasons they moved to Jersey is to provide a little bit better form of education for them. Because again, the father is a minister. Is because the father and mother are trying to negotiate the space you led us out with today, Professor Hunter. There's a tiny group of free Negroes. And by the way, when they moved from three million, I'm sorry, when they moved from uh, two million to four million in those 30 years, the free black population went up by like a hundred and I forget now, maybe like 130, 140,000. 
which means it didn't explode. Why? It ain't gonna never be but a handful of free blacks. And those free blacks are either gonna be clustered in the North in little individual communities, or they're gonna be in spaces where they are just trying to get along to, to, to survive. Now, if you're one of those quote unquote free blacks in Massachusetts, in New York, in Pennsylvania, what are you doing? Some of y'all trying to figure out how to help spring your, your brethren. So they start that Negro convention movement that you talked to our, in fact, her book, uh, the collection of essays just came out. I remember when you talked to uh, Gabrielle Foreman on the show, right? There's the book, The Colored Convention Movement, Black Organizing in the 19th Century. There they are meeting, right? It's an excellent companion volume. But if you want the documents, the primary documents, that the minutes of these meetings, they have an online, uh, an online piece where you can tap in and read that stuff, or you can get Howard Bell stuff. How Bell published two big volumes of notes from the Negro Convention movements. It's very important. Why? Because these free blacks are going to say, we're trying to help the rest of these black people. Octavius Cato is going to inherit that spirit. So for his father's generation, they're trying to figure out how to help black people in the 18-teens, the 1820s, the 1830s. And so what you see is, you know, for William Cato, you know, he's a minister and he's pushing the white ministers the Prespers, the Quakers, the Methodists. And of course, the Quakers love, you know, we love black people. Yeah, you got five black people in the whole damn state of Pennsylvania. Of course, you can afford to love them. And when they move up there, that's when we're going to see the Rocky come out. But at any rate, when you, and that's what ultimately leads to the end of Octavius Cato in terms of his physical form, although his spirit lives on. And today we are doing what we have to do, which is go back and revisit him. Some of y'all are like, Octavius Cato, it's the first time I heard this name. Trust me, we ain't even got to the superhero stuff yet. This dude is a superhero. So then, and He's not an outlier. He's representative of a, for lack of a better term, using the common parlance, race. A race of superheroes. As Melfi Asante used to say, we are the children of those who could not be killed. Don't you know if we could have been killed, we'd all be dead? Let's be clear. So at any rate, so when we get to Cato coming into manhood, his father and mother trying to send him to school to get a good education. They are part of a generation who's trying to figure out how to advocate for our people, but they exist in the, their governance structure to use the Africana Studies framework we created. Remember, the governance structure question asks, who are Africans to each other? So William Cattle is a contemporary of some of these figures that are emerging. Richard Allen, Morris Brown, these cats, and some of these cats are in Philadelphia. You know, James Fortin and them, uh, 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 the Grimkeys including a dynamic group of sisters, you know, Charlotte Grimke. I mean, my God, Carolyn Grimke, these are serious sisters now. Because again, you know, gender is an important thing for us to consider, but let's be very clear. Race, sex, class are categories. When you start slicing and dicing us up sociologically, it's easier to move us around and get us to think that these somehow demographic, demographic categories are identities. They are not. And then, of course, then you got to put them back together and then announce that, okay, we've put them back together. We're being intersectional. You should never have pulled a Martin in the first place. So you only get to have you only have to have intersectionality when you pulled something apart in the first place. So this is what we're not gonna do in this space. We're not pulling things apart. We're gonna take people as people. Okay. That's that's part of the Africana studies grounding. That's what we would call worldview or world sense. The idea that let's not do things that don't make sense. Let's ground things in different perspectives that come out of our lived experiences. And for us, people of African descent, those experiences are extensions of our Africana lived experiences. We never stop being Africans. We just adapt to wherever we are. So in that governance category, you ask who are these Africans to each other? The Caddo's are in conversation 
with these other black abolitionists. They're, you know, they're in conversation with the people who are at these colored conventions. And when they go to these conventions and have these conversations, they're debating, how should we help our people? How should we help our people? By the 1840s, again, young Cato moves up with his family in 1843. Within that framework of a couple of years, you got a cat named Henry Highland Garnett. Love this brother. Woo, Henry Garnett, man. Henry Garnett was a teenage boy in New York. He worked on ships. When they passed the Fugitive Slave Act, oh, oh no, no, I, I had to resist the urge, Karen, because I had to keep my eye on the clock. Because there are so many, again, these are these are just teasers. These are breadcrumbs. Look up Henry Highland Garnett. And when you look at him, look at the New York African Free School. And when you look at the New York African Free School, I want you to then start looking for Alexander Crummel. Start looking for Ira Aldrich. Start looking for them young black kids that came out of the New York African Free School. And look for, or is it Oneida Institute in New Hampshire? That's where Henry Garnett, as a teenager, his friend Thomas Sidney, his friend Alexander Cromel, they sent these boys up here to this white school to go to school. No, Noyes, Noyes, New Hampshire, maybe it was. Anyway. They sent them up there. If you want to read about it, there are a number of places you can read about it. Uh, uh, Wilson Moses' book on Alexander Crummel. Uh, Alexander Crummel, A Study in Civilization and Discontent. Uh, you can look at Crummel's own writings. Crummel gave the eulogy at Garnett's funeral because they he, he, he told the story of how they was teenage boy. I think it's in his collection of essays called The Future of Africa. But, I, but if not, get Wilson Moses' edited volume of Alexander Crummel's speeches. And I won't go over here and try to comb through. I think I, I think that those two are not in stories. But anyway, because I love Alexander Crummel. If you read Souls of Black Folk, that's who Du Bois is talking about when he writes that chapter of Mr. Alexander Crummel and others. Brilliant brother. But at any rate, contemporary, by the way, of a uh, little bit, yeah, yeah, overlap with Octavius Cato. Cato knew all these cats, but at any rate, Crummel, Garnett, and these cats go to the school and the white boys find out that they're going to be integrating this school, this New England school. So what do they do? They get liquored up and drink. You know how they get these beer muscles. You saw some of their descendants uh, on January 6th down there at the Capitol. Um, and they went in, hitched uh, chains to the frame of the building where the school was, hitched the other side to the ox, oxen they brought and drug the thing into a swamp. Then went looking for these boys. And Crummel told the story about how they had the boys surrounded in a barn. They was basically going to lynch these young boys. And some kind of way, Garnett ends up making some kind of makeshift explosive device in the barn, fires a shot out and scares the hell out of them long enough for the boys to escape. And that's how he come to manhood. But Garnett grew up in uh, in New York. And Garnett uh, was uh, a seaman, a young seaman, when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, and Garnett was out at sea. He comes back into port. He comes to New York. He comes back home in New York City, finds out that somebody came to his house, knocked on the door. His daddy answered the door saying, are you so-and-so? He said, no, nah, what are you talking about? Closed the door, and then they jumping out the windows trying to get away. That's the slave stealers. That damn Fugitive Slave Act. So ain't nobody free, really, in America. They're going to take them back to slavery. They captured a couple of the, the members of the family. You know, Garnett went and bought this knife. And his, and the reason we know Henry Highland Garnett today is because his friends in New York stopped him because he said, I'm going down on the Broadway, as they called it, two words at that point, the Broadway, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to handle a little business. We'll see how many these white boys I can kill. That stopped Garnett. Can you imagine you're a teenager? Some of y'all teenagers watching this right now. If you're a teenager, you know exactly how Henry Garnett. Wait, wait, my mama, my daddy, wait, what? What? They knocked on what? Shh. Bet. 
I got, I got this. So th these, you know, Henry Garnett was one of those people. And Garnett in 18, I guess it was 43 or 44, at one of these conventions, I think it was Troy, New York, he gives what he calls his address to the slaves. He says, where is the blood of your fathers? Has it all run out of you? Let your motto be resistance. They are crying. They are crying from the grave to you. In other words, we supposed to be free blacks. We're going to help our, our brethren. There are millions in enslavement. Where's the blood of your fathers? I mean, you know, Garnett is like, y'all up here drinking this little tea. Y'all got a nice little frame house. You know, you, you're struggling a little bit, but it's cool. You got your, where's the blood of your fathers? In other words, have you forgotten? You know what I'm saying? So these young people, y'all take off them shirts to say, uh, dear so-and-so, I'm not my ancestors. Garnett is saying the reverse thing. You, you, Your best dream is to be your ancestors. But at any rate, Fred Douglas, a hero in his own right, is shook by Garnett's address because they are voting on a proposition on whether or not to adopt Garnett's straight up, let's go get them speech as the official statement of that particular convention meeting. Douglas is like, Bruh, now you know I whipped Cubby's ass. I mean, y'all read my stuff, man. But we're gonna have a whole war. Cause see, Douglas, Delaney, uh uh Harriet Tubman, all meeting around. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, about, about a dozen years before 1857 at Harper's Ferry. So they all knew John Brown. And John Brown, crazy behind out of New England by way of Kansas, coming back through Ohio. John Brown is like. The only way this thing is going to end is we got to purge this land with blood. It's got to be a whole ass rebellion. <laughs> we got to have, you know, are y'all with me? Let's just have a straight rebellion. So he's plotting. He meets with Delaney and him in Canada and he meets with, you know, Douglas. In fact, he says of Harriet Tubman, he, Harriet, is more man than any man I ever met. Now, that's the kind of, you know, sexist way of saying it. But he's saying basically she she's a more courageous human being than all of us. So when he jumps off of Harper's Ferry in 1857, of course, uh, what you see is that uh, Delaney's out of the country. He's in Africa. Because see, Delaney's thing is we can we can just get back with these Africans and we can just make all the money. We're going we gonna to build in Africa. Why the hell are we staying here in the first place? Douglas it says, you know, I kind of regret I didn't go to Harper's Ferry, this kind of thing. Tubman, of course, is doing what Tubman does, which is liberating Africans one at a time if she has to. And so John Brown and six Africans, including Dangerfield Newby, uh, uh, who died uh, there. What a name. Dangerfield newbie all these people they 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 died at harper's ferry or they were executed shortly thereafter and black women took care of john brown's wife and, the, and her surviving children for the rest of their lives uh james mcbride wrote a fictional kind of piece called the good lord bird i think they made a movie out of it but you really want to read uh du bois wrote his book john brown he said it was his favorite book that he wrote was on john brown because he puts it in context so at any rate let me kind of wind this back to where we where we are these, these are the debates among the so-called free blacks do we rebel do we leave because they also talk about leaving. Now, you got some racist white people, North and South, that are like, yeah, them free blacks, send them to Liberia or send them to Nicaragua. You got a racist in the White House named Abraham Lincoln by the 1860s. Just like, you know, Nicaragua might be cool. In fact, one of the reasons they recognize Haiti in 1862, the United States government, Lincoln's the president, is because they're thinking we can send them Negroes to Haiti. And then you got some free blacks that's like, you ain't got to tell me. You got some blacks that are like, you ain't running me from America. My blood is, I spilled my blood here as if there weren't blood that came out for millions of years and hundreds of thousands of years before that, before you got drug over here and changed. But yes, you're not running me away. 
So they saying, I see this American colonization society y'all founded. These white people want to send us to Liberia, America's colony. Said America's ain't got no colonies in them in, in Africa. That's a lie. You went over there disturbing the Creole and the and the Basa and the Kisi and all the other the crew, the people who live in Liberia, and then you stuck these Africans, the descendants of those you enslaved, back over there, called it Liberia. And to this day, you got people who still say I'm American Liberian. People say, no, I'm kind of like I mean, it's a mess, right? Y'all created that though under that red white and blue striped and that one star in the Liberian flag. Y'all did that. That's America's colony. And then next door, the British one, Sierra Leone, but story for another day. So you got these white people who want to send these free blacks away. Now we're talking about the 1830s, the 1840s. Around the time Cato was coming to Philadelphia, you talk as a boy, you're talking about uh, some blacks who say, you know what, we'll go. I like Haiti. Martin Delaney, you know, Delaney at first was like, I ain't going nowhere. Then he travels some. He comes back and he writes something called this this thing called the condition, elevation and political destiny of the colored race in the United States of America. He said, yeah, we should just leave. So all these debates are going on when Cato's father, William, is in the middle of these conversations, but in the social structure category of our framework. Who are these Africans to other people? You got white people who think they know better for black people. And they're going to test it out on free black people. So, Karen, the answer to the question is, how could black people be getting degrees in the 19th century? How could they be getting degrees during the period of enslavement, even if there are a handful of free blacks? How could they do that? They could do that because you have elements in the white community who are saying, we need to train them before they go off and train themselves. So, yeah, Oberlin. Mm -hmm. Tiny, you know what I'm saying? In other words, because if they mess around and get a worldview that's clear, we're going to take an L. Put these Negroes in school. That's why they start with seminaries. Remember what Je white Jesus right, said. Let me bounce out. But yeah, I, no, no, this is good. Come on. We're having this conversation because we are a handful of free Blacks. Hi, yes. yes. Now, more of us not free. We're contemplating the same questions that our ancestors were con contemplating in the 1800s. That's Should we stay and build... And we got at the same time white folk directing traffic in our media, in our schools, Come on. indoctrinating our kids, categorizing our children for the That's next generation, right. erasing our history. So continue. I'm sorry. I just. No, no, no. Please. We're in the exact same place. We are in the exact. And that's it. Maria Baraka and many others. But I remember Baraka first come to mind first. Baraka used to call it the changing same. This is why you have to have the momentum of memory. If you don't remember, you won't recognize we've been here before. We have been here before. Oh, they're making a documentary for Netflix. Oh, we've been here before. Oh, look at this. They're investing money in. We've been here before. Oh, look, they're saying we got to teach this differently in the curriculum. We've been here before. And if we've been here before, we have to then understand the lessons that we should have learned the last time we were here. There was a time when they didn't want you talking to each other. So they forced that English in your mouth. They forced that French in your mouth. They forced that Portuguese and that Dutch. They forced it in your mouth so you could listen to them and take orders. You took that language and remixed it and you still were able to talk to each other in front of them. Ebonics is not slang. Ebonics is not broken English. That's a social structure creation to think about. So even when you look at a, 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 a an assignment like the one that was, like you said, we both saw on social media. You know, somebody gives an assignment, write a letter to uh, your African village or write a letter to the slave and tell them what, the immediate reaction is that's racist. My reaction is I'm not looking at it from how I imagine you are imagining me. 
In other words, I'm not looking at it as a black American. In other words, I'm not looking at it as a figment of the white American imagination. I'm looking at it as a person of African descent, free in the world to think through everything with enough memory to see, I've seen this before. There was a time you didn't want us talking to no ancestors. So guess what? I think it's an excellent lesson to write a letter to your ancestors. Now this language you picked, that's not the social structure. I'm not even thinking about that, but I'm thinking about it as a point of entry. You know, in my classroom, they give me that. I'm be like, okay, class, we're going to write letters now. We're going to write letters to ancestors. Why don't you write a letter to your ancestor who was the last person to die of old age in Africa before the boats came? Write a letter to her. What would you say to her we've been doing since? And force those young people to think. That will be the point of departure. Meanwhile, what's going to happen is they'll get a short segment on MSNBC or CNN. Somebody going to come and express outrage. And See, you wasted energy. We've been here before. Don't get pulled off your square. <laughs> it's very important to understand. All right. So, yes. In the, um, by the way, before I go any further, hmm, I should have. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about Octavius Cato and, and, and we're going to wind up with this. But I want to give you all this source. Um. Cato didn't live long, 31 years old. Mm. We'll get to why in a second. Um, Cato has been a hero of mine since I was introduced to him as an adult, sadly, but by one of my great jegners, the great Charles Leroy Bloxon. Charles Bloxon, the curator of the Bloxon Collection uh, in Philadelphia, Temple University, book collector. You know, I, I, I mean, I learned a lot of book craft from Charlie Bloxon, still alive. He's approaching 90 soon. Born in Northtown, Pennsylvania. The man. I love him. Um, Bloxon loved Cato. And so I learned about Cato. I learned about Pennsylvania Hall. I'm going to talk about all that in a second. I'm going to kind of keep this short. But um, there are Haitian connections in this. I mean, it's very interesting. And Bloxon collected a lot of stuff in Haiti. In fact, this is uh, one of his many books, Charles Bloxon, uh, The Haitian Revolution. Create, celebrating the first black republic. This is one of the smaller ones by Charles Bloxon. It was uh, exhibited at the African-American Museum of Pennsylvania. All the stuff in the museum, letters from Toussaint Louverture, photographs, carvings, this kind of thing, a cannonball that was used during the Haitian Revolution, this kind of thing. All that stuff's in Charles Bloxon's private collection. That's the kind of guy he was. But I learned about Cato and I was like, man, I got to read more about Cato. So we, he had documents. So I'm able to read about Cato, read about his contemporaries, read about what happened to him. And but there wasn't a single volume that kind of put it all together until fairly recently. This book came out in 2010. Uh, it's by Daniel Biddle. It's called Tasting Freedom. Octavius Cato and the Battle for Equality in the Civil War America. You see how thick this book is, including index and table uh, in the end. The book is uh, 616 pages. Daniel Biddle and Murray Dugan. And what you see is in this book, by the time Cato comes to adulthood, let me see if I can very quickly uh, flag here. He, um, he is a contemporary of some of the people whose names you know and many of the people whose names you don't know. But it's important to understand that, here we are. Let me put it here so y'all can see. Uh, these are some of his contemporaries. There's Fred Douglas. There's Henry Highland Garnett. There's Martin Robeson Delaney. You see these cats here? There's Charlotte Fortin, William Lloyd Garrison, the man, William Steele. And there's Cato. See, see Octavius Cato? 
There he is right there next to William Steele. If you watch the UPN uh, series uh, Underground, you saw William Steele. William Steele, he published this thick book called The Underground Railroad. Steele was stationed in Philly. Right over there, if you know Philadelphia, North Philly, the building is right across from where Ben Franklin High School is, right there in North Philly. And he was a station agent, what they call a station agent on the Underground Railroad. So if you escaped and got to Philadelphia, he would take your story down as he helped you secure lodging and, you know, get where you were going to go, this kind of thing. His people from Jersey. And I'll never forget Mr. Bloxon and I, we sitting down after I read this and I talked to him about he because he knew people in William Steele's family. Because everybody still got family, right? Most people. Or, or alive. And uh, in fact, Harriet Tubman's relatives gave him Harriet Tubman's prayer shawl. And Mr. Bloxon donated it to the Museum of African American History and Culture. So when the Smithsonian opens back up and you go back down to the museum, you see Harriet Tubman's prayer shawl. Charlie Bloxon made sure that they had that in the documentary and uh, in, in, in the building. In fact, uh, Lonnie Bunch, Director Bunch, who's now the director of all the Smithsonian's, tells a story of how Charles Bloxon called up and said, I think this needs to be down there with y'all. But at any rate, William Stills people in Jersey still in his book, The Underground Railroad, which is first person documents of how people made escape and this kind of thing. William still tells the story of how the family was separated in Jersey and enslavement and how they escaped and how they broke up and how he hadn't seen his family in years. And he and this dude comes in who's escaped and he's taking the story down. And William still is writing. You read the book, The Underground Railroad. Still is like, and as I wrote the story, I kept and I looked at this man and I realized I hadn't seen this man since I was a little boy. He says it was my own brother. Still says he excuses himself and goes and cries. Because he'd been gone. They were separated when still was a boy. Now what? Uh what uh let's see, I got I got caught up with that because here it is. Because I had to go look. What uh, what Biddle and Dubin talk about in here is that William Steele, in his late 40s now, when Cattle encounters him, Octavius Cattle, still when them dudes ain't forgave nothing. <laughs> you understand? So this is the fire of the people who are surrounding Cattle. Let me kind of wind this up because, I mean, again, this is just a breadcrumb. Octavius Cattle grows to manhood. They come back from Jersey because... It's one thing to have these white folks who love these individual Negroes, these magical Negroes, and they want to help them. And you're going, you'll be a good preacher like your daddy. We want you to come in and help the Negroes. And remember what Jesus said. Work is it? Okay, here we go. All that stuff. So they moved back to Philly. When they moved back to Philly, Octavius Cattle was enrolled at a school that started in the 1830s. And this school was started in the 1830s because a white man, a Quaker by the name of uh, Richard Humphreys, died in 1832. He left in his will for the education of black youth $10,000, which is about an eighth of his uh, worth, which is important. It's very important to, to, to make note of. Um, by 1837, they've started a kind of place to, to, to educate black children. They called the Institute of Colored Youth. That Institute of Color Youth, though, they, they focus on agriculture and industrial development. Again, this is a social structure saying, what do these Negroes need? Now, did you ask the black people what they need? I need a job. I need a trade. Yeah. OK, but maybe I want to do some other stuff. Now, we think we, we need y'all in agriculture. We need you in industry. Fast forward to 2021. STEM is great. STEM is important. But always be suspicious of people who ain't sending their children in the field to tell you where you should send your children. But at any rate, so the Institute for Colored Youth 
kind of lapses along because they're battles, you know, they're not really, you know what I mean? So it, it gets revived in the early 1850s. Fugitive Slave Act 1850 sends shockwaves through the country. 1851, they say, you know what? Let's see, can we reframe this? Because there's a black dude named Ishmael Locke in Philly. He done started night classes for black children. Because see, black people be educating their children at home. At home, They be kind of clustered together because they ain't got no schools. They've been fighting to get them into white schools. Then they say, you know what? We're going to educate them at home while we also fight. This dude, Ishmael Locke, is like, let's start some night classes. So he started night classes. And what does he teach? Agriculture, industry. Nah. Ishmael Locke starts teaching classes in English and the classics. Now, it ain't the Egyptians. It ain't Nubia. It ain't, you know, it's Greek, it's Latin. Because at that time, that's what they know. Now, they ain't, you know, there are some people who are arguing about ancient Egypt. Mariah Stewart, uh, Prince Hall, uh, David Walker gestures toward the Egyptians in 1829. Martin Delaney, for sure, certainly near the end of his life. So you got people, but most time they think classics, they think Greek and Latin. They think, we want our children, and this is what they're doing, for right or for wrong. They're like, hmm, you, sir. Richest white man in the whole damn world whose children are in the best schools. I just got one question, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, what do your children learn? Well, my children learn Greek and Latin and mathematics. Meanwhile, the Negro is sitting there. Hmm, Greek, Latin. Appreciate you, sir. Night school. <laughs> and they start training these children. So Ishmael Locke, the black cat, with the black women and men who got their children. So these Institute for Color Youth white Quakers is like, maybe we should go that way so what do they do in the fall of 18 of 1852 they bought some property on lombard street the building is still there i used to sit there's a little patch across the street from it i used to go down there and sit across from it to read because i just like being on the same street in front of the same building that was the institute for colored youth when they got it going good in 1852 and they put an ad in the paper and said we need a teacher to run this school and a colored person who has the same high credentials as anybody else would be preferred. And who did they get a cat by the name of Charles L. Reason, 34 years old, from New York City, went to the African Free School of New York, whose parents immigrated from Haiti. My man, Charles Reason, was no joke. In fact, Karen, let's do this. Charles Reason. Watch this. A New York child of Haitian immigrants, Reason had aspired to the ministry, but an Episcopal seminary rejected him for his color. Oh, he's going to be a preacher. Oh, boy. They rejected him, though. Probably a good thing. Why? He attended New York Central College, one of three in the nation accepting Negroes. And there, and before that was a classmate of Garnett, Henry Holland Garnett, Ward, that's Samuel Ringold Ward. Look him up. William Wells Brown. William Wells Brown was hitting them early black histories. The black man, uh, the rising sun, a history of the Negro and American Revolution. Uh, and James McCune's, man, come on now. These are all-stars. James McCune Smith had an MD. He went to school in Scotland. James McCune Smith. Look him up. These cats, but they was all boys together. Where? At the African Free School. Like the bird school's pupils, free school students learned to sprint. White boys of lower Manhattan routinely pelted them with stones and epithets. Thus did reason arise in Philadelphia well prepared. His plan for the Institute for Colored Youth was daunting and elaborate. Families would submit applications and pay $10 for tuition, books, and stationery. Well, hell, that's just like now. We got narrative. 
We got a handful of people say, well, you know, I can't, I can't afford that. Look, we understand. We still here on Saturdays. This is the front door. You come in, you get it. But watch this. What does reason say? The poorest pupils could attend free. Boys and girls alike. Boys and girls alike. Stop for a second. Now we continue. Boys and girls alike <laughs> would study algebra, trigonometry, poetry, the classics, and the sciences with an S. In keeping with Richard Humphrey's will, students would learn to teach. They about to subvert the whole damn thing. We want y'all to have the best education we know how to give you, and we're going to train you to teach it to everybody else. This is, so if you're a free Negro, fast forward to where we are, like you said, Karen, the changing same. You know what your job is? Your job is not to get famous, to build a platform so we can buy a copy of a magazine and say, this is great. Nah. Your job is to get everybody else free. If not, then we look, we wave, we appreciate, but what we don't do is stick you up as the role model. You can't be no role model. You're just an example of what we can do. But if you're not trying to figure out how to make space for everybody else, I'm not talking about just putting three or four people on the corporate board. Yeah, that's cool. You can do that. In fact, I was rereading my man, Randall Robinson, because, you know, I thought maybe we were talking about Haiti. I said, we might get a little bit of Haiti in today. We may not, because, I mean, this is a story that's, that's developing, right? Juvenile is down there. The Haitian said, you got to go. But it reminded me because in uh, when his book came out on Haiti uh, called An Unbroken Agony, my man, Randall Robinson, uh, Randall Robinson, this is his uh, autobiography, by the way, Randall Robinson, memoir, Defending the Spirit of Black Life in America. You know Randall Robinson, of course, because his brother Max, you probably knew Max. I don't know if you knew Max. He's a little bit he's a different generation. But yeah. 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 He's older than, uh, than us. So, but uh, Randall Robinson, every year for Freedom School, we pick a book. Been doing it for 20 years now, 21 years. We do a summer book, we do a year round book. The summer book we picked one year was Haiti. I did a whole deep dive into Haiti. And so I so said, our young people really need to understand. We need to understand Haiti. We need to think about it and understand it in context. And Randall Robinson came. He came twice to Freedom Schools. So we read two of his books, The Debt. Y'all know uh, it yes. is a case for reparations and stuff. When debt came out, we read that. That was the first book we did for Freedom Schools. That was like the year 2000, 2001. So Randall Robinson in this book talks about when he and his brother, Max, Max his brother is like, we need to help you raise money for Trans Africa because, you know, they were living here in D.C. And Max Robinson was a local uh, network person. And then, of course, he made the leap. In fact, he tells a story in there how they were getting ready to interview somebody and they had Meet the Press. You remember when Meet the Press used to come on and you see the person that was going to be interviewed and all you saw were the backs of the heads of the people who was going to interview him and say, we'll be, when we come back, we have when they came back from commercial, he says, mama called screaming and stuff like that because he was in Sunday morning, he reading the paper. He said, what, 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 turn on TV, what? Damn, it's, it's Max. Max Robinson was one of the four, but he ain't said nothing to nobody because they had called him late and said, okay, will you be one of the four? So he, that was his debut. He said there was only two black people I had seen on TV and only two black people I seen on TV that I knew. They both from Richmond because all these boys from Richmond. One, The first one was Arthur Ashe, who was their friend from Richmond. Get the, the recent biography, uh, Raymond Austin did a good book called Arthur Ashe, A Life. And then my brother Max. So at any rate, Max, we got to raise some money. So they had this thing at their uh, up here in Northwest on 16th Street in D.C. And black people came, white folk came, some African ambassadors from African countries, things came. One of the cases came was Vernon Jordan. And so uh, Max Robinson's like, they raised about $10,000. And that's what they started with Trans-Africa, which is important. The whole thing we had to talk about Trans-Africa, maybe another day as we think about what they did and tried to do worldwide. Continue to try to do, by the way, still alive. 
uh, still the, the well, Randall Robson is as well, but the 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 formation called Trans Africa, Danny Glover and them. Uh, shout out to my man, Moisa Ndali, who for many years was the archivist, kind of intellectual center of keeping the culture, keeping the records at, at Trans Africa. Um, but in this memoir, he talks about Vernon Jordan, and he's got this little chapter where, and I, if I can't find it immediately, I won't go give me five seconds if I don't see it here. Um, oh, yeah, he's got he's got part eight, which is near the end. It's called Plantation Redux, and he calls it the City of Privilege. He's got a little section in here, and he, he does this metaphor. He says, inside the City of Privilege, they have a handful of Blacks, but there are rules. He said, I live in the City of Privilege. The rules are you can't really talk too much about them blacks who are outside the gate because they out there with fair kind in them and they don't like the inequality. They don't like the struggle. But in the city of privilege, there's only a handful of people anyway. There's a sprinkling of blacks we let in. But here are the rules. And then he just serious about it. he says the blacks in privilege greatly fear expulsion. That's the number one thing they fear. Don't put me out of the city of privilege. He says if Hobson's choice is little or nothing, the Hobson's choice means no choice at all. The black residents of privilege feel it is their duty to stay and fight hard for little. More than expulsion, however, they fear Vernon Jordan disease, a degenerative condition among blacks and privilege that results in a loss of any memory of what they came to privilege to accomplish. And further, any memory of the millions camped outside the gate with Louis Farrakhan. He says, I do not worry about contracting this disease. I'm told by my physician that it afflicts only those blacks who both wish feverishly and after careful screening are allowed to be close to the president socially. And then he goes on. So anyway, but he says, but however, I am in the city of privilege. <laughs> I mean, now wait, there ain't me talking. If y'all get mad, get mad at Randall Robinson. Don't did get say, wait, did he say Vernon Jordan disease? He called it Vernon Jordan disease. Okay, I just wanted to ask you know, that. I just, I wanted to, yeah, of course. I'm just saying Actually, now he just Jordan died. ancestor, shout out to him. You know, I met the brother a couple of times. You know, we the longest conversation we had was like 20 minutes standing on a train uh, trestle in Trenton. You know where? Because I would take the uh, the SEPTA, the Southeastern Pennsylvania, because uh, I'm cheap. I ain't got no money. I'm taking it from Philly to Trenton. Switch to Trenton to the New Jersey Transit. I get to New York. The money I saved, I can buy books once I get to the Strand, right? And the black bookstores. So Vernon Jordan getting on the uh, Amtrak. And I'm standing here, you know, so, you know, I ain't getting on the Amtrak. And if I was, I would be sitting in first class. But Vernon Jordan had a very nice conversation. I mean, fascinating. He get his book. Vernon can read. Very important to understand. Um, he did a, also a little book of, 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 uh, of commentary and speeches. Very important. But what Robinson is saying, see, it's not enough to get in the room and then say, you know, I got somebody else on the board or, you know, I keep up with y'all. I'm trying to help y'all. OK, what about getting in there and saying, hey. All these corporate boards, why are y'all giving money to these white nationalists that are ones giving money to these politicians who are pushing voter suppression? Oh, no. My greatest fear is being expelled from the city of privilege. So I, I, I'm not going to say anything about that. I'm not going to say anything about that. But at any rate, so if you're not doing something for everybody, your black elite status is really an indictment. So going back again, which we never really left, you got cats like Charles Reason. Who comes in and says we're going to train these young people in all this stuff girls and boys alike and we're going to train you to teach then he says reason set the standards high applicants had to pass exams in reading writing spelling arithmetic as far as fractions and in the geography of the united states he says when he set that down guess who started coming oh there's one other thing white people we know it's y'all money that started it it's great but y'all wanted me to come because I'm black, right? Yeah, I want black teachers. 
the Quakers is like, uh, okay, well, well, where are you going to find qualified black teachers? <laughs> the changing same. Oh, they exist. <laughs> Who shows up? Watch this. The little faculty began to attract stars. Sarah Maps Douglas signed on, and the Institute for Colored Youth annexed her school for girls. A veteran of Pennsylvania Hall. Pause. Go get a book called Pennsylvania Hall. Why? Because in the 1830s, they had a little school that was integrated in Philly where they tried to do a lot of things, including teach black children, and the white boys in Philly burned it to the ground. It was a pogrom. It's what they do. She already had a following, and she too was inclined to innovate. She began teaching human physiology to girls. A mathematician by training. Reason favored math and the sciences. He announced the areas of study. He got all this stuff. Now watch this. They started with six peoples in 1852. On the eve of the Civil War, they had about 100. And guess what? Their grades? Cameron, <laughs> you're not going to... Oh, by the way, let me just show you this. This is where they burnt Pennsylvania Hall down, where, where, where Sarah Douglas was teaching. Mm. See, it's very important. But watch this. Their grades? They printed their grades in the biggest black newspaper of the time, the African Methodist Church, uh, the AME Recorder. So if you were a child at the Institute for Colored Youth, Black America knew your grades. <laughs> I mean, this is a place, you understand? But, but it speaks to who we, we're responsible for one another. Come on. You know, what we're doing here on Saturday is handing out a whole bunch of batons. Mm. Come up and make sure that you free somebody. Run your leg in a race and make sure that you are responsible for somebody else being free. That's that's the and and publishing those grades makes us all accountable. Yes. Makes us accountable to all of us, and we must be accountable to one another. That's it, Karen. No, that's it. They weren't doing it to shame. They were doing that. They were doing it to show people what they were doing and to have those young people know you represent us. They made it up. They were about 112 students. In fact, I'm just going to I'm gonna end with this. I'm going to come back to Cato. I'm going to keep this real short now because y'all know where to go look for it. And on the other side, we're, we're continuing to add books. We continue to add now. We will start lesson plans. We're going to get all that stuff, right? We're getting all that's just being done now. Y'all are seeing if you're on the other side. So Cato, his parents enroll him in the ICY. He graduates from the ICY, Institute for Color Youth, in, 19, in 1858. Mm -hmm. 1858, he's so bad, they invite him back, and in 1859, he becomes a teacher. He's a teacher at the Institute for Colored School. Then, uh, the Institute for Colored Youth. Two years later, 1861, he becomes the uh, the alumni president of the Institute for Colored Youth. That's very important. Now, here's what he doesn't end up doing. He doesn't end up running the Institute for Colored Youth. Why not? You think this guy is good enough to teach here. He's one of our star pupils. He's very important because what happens? Well, after the first principal, they hire another brother who becomes the principal. This brother is brought in by Ulysses S. Grant to become the, uh, um, the minister to Haiti. The first minister to Haiti is Fred Douglas, 1862. Lincoln, 1863. Lincoln appoints Fred Douglas. In fact, there's a very good little book called Haiti, A Slave Revolution. 200 years after 1804, Ramsey Clark, Adrige Dendicott, Fred Douglas. Why is Douglas's name on here? 
not because he's alive. Fred Douglas's name isn't here because he gives a very famous talk about Haiti, lecture on Haiti. It's on page 65 in this book. He delivered it at the World's Fair in 1893, near the end of his life, because the Haitians by 1893, and y'all go back and look at the conversation we had about Adabel Wells Barnett on the narrative site. What you'll see is, and you have all the appendages there, you'll see that, you know, that when the black people from the United States said, where's our place to display what we've done at the World's Fair in 1893 in Chicago, they was like, you and the Haitians was like, we got y'all, come with us. And so they publish a piece called Why the Negro is Not in the Colored Exposition. And once they write it, this is I Garland Penn. This is Adabel Wells Barnett, who are, to your point, uh, to, to your point, uh, Professor Hunter, they are being apprenticed by the old man, by Fred Douglas. Douglas said, I'll lend my name to it. I'll even give a talk. Y'all can put all that and we'll put them three together. Y'all publish it. I'm with y'all. And so the Haitians are allowing them to sell the thing out of the uh the, the pavilion in 1893 and he gives a lecture on haiti or oh, one other thing go back and look at the conversation we had about aunt jemima because at that same exposition they got uh, a, a lady playing aunt jemima flicking pancakes so anyway so all this stuff is going on again you can't make up being black in america this is some absurd stuff we trying to fight anyway so douglas they make the first minister lincoln because they got to recognize haiti in part because they think they're going to start sending black people to haiti and black people were like, hmm. Some black people were like, yeah, I'll go. James Theodore Holly, Bishop Holly, the Amy Church. Jay, I wrote about him in my dissertation. I'm all, most of these people I wrote about in my dissertation because my dissertation was about how have we tried to create an image and an idea, more importantly, an idea of who we are that wasn't uh, bent to, informed and fed by, ordered to the needs of this society. And it's a fascinating thing because these people have always existed. So anyway, the second appointed person for uh, to be a minister to Haiti, uh, he's the first, they call him the first diplomat, although I think Douglas probably could make the argument that he should be called the first diplomat. But the second person who is appointed, uh, I think the Grant administration appoints him in the 18, uh, early, well, 1868, I guess it would be, 68, 69. He is the second black principal of the Institute for Colored Youth. And Cato was like, are they going to make me the principal now? Cause I've been teaching here for a few years. You know, I'm the man, this kind of thing. Uh, in between, by the way, he's made a, uh, he's made a, uh, he's made a teacher. He's on the faculty of the Institute of Colored Youth. He is the president of the alumni by 1861. Then the civil war is jumped off by then. So 1863, they're going to start getting black people to fight. So he recruits a black regiment in Pennsylvania. He's part of the Pennsylvania national guard. He is made uh, a major in the United States colored troop affiliate with the Pennsylvania National Guard. He's never called up to duty. That's going to be important in about five minutes as I wind up the story because this is something that we'll be talking about. You all have the information that you can look at for yourself. He, he's, he, he's part of the 5th Brigade of the United States Colored Troops. And so, wait, this guy's a military guy? Yeah. yeah, Not just a military guy. He got to rank a major in this Pennsylvania National Guard. Really? It's some serious stuff, man. Uh, 1864? He is one of the founders of the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League. Equal Rights League. Where have I heard that before? Go, go on look when we had conversations about Martin Luther King. Look at Henry Neil Turner and Martin Luther King's granddaddy, A.D. Williams. They are co-founders along with others of the Georgia Equal Rights League. All y'all trying to strip black people out of vote and we out here like, well, shit, they don't do that. Then, man, after these Democrats and Republicans, they all the same. See, this is amnesia. You got to have the momentum of memory. You don't win a war 
in, in November and then you vote and then you see somebody act a fool like Kristen Cinema or my man Joe Manchin. We knew Joe. We knew what you was going to do, baby. And all them white nationalists on the other side who nobody ever indicts because you assume they're not human. And that's not necessarily an unsafe assumption. But you, why? It's 100 people in the Senate. How 50 of them get a pass? Because consciously or not, what you said is we've relegated y'all to something less than human. They're enemies of humanity. If they're going to preserve their whiteness over people's health, over heat in Texas, over being able to get uh, uh, get the, get their, their children inoculated. I mean, all this right here. So anyway, what you see then is that by 1864 with the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League, you got black people during the Civil War who are saying we're pressing for rights because we're going to win this war. And then we are going to be free. So whether it's Georgia or Pennsylvania or anywhere else, we're going to push now for the next stage. We're going to fight this war. Cato is in the middle of that fight. He's one of the founders. Meanwhile, he also enjoys a little recreation. He's a baseball player. Now, let me pause here for a second. Just long enough, just long enough to tell people that Jack Roosevelt Robinson Two things, least important thing first. He wasn't the first black to play white major league baseball. If you wanted to play white major league baseball before Jack Roosevelt Robinson, and they looked at you and said, ain't you black? You could say, oh, I'm an Indian. I'm Spanish. <laughs> so you had Negroes who was sneaking in. You know? <laughs> but that's the second most important thing. That ain't really important. The important thing is that we rarely, if ever, talk about or even think about what baseball was number one created to do in this country, what it eventually came to do. And number two, when it got segregated in the first place, people assume it wasn't always, it wasn't always segregated. In fact, there's a very good book called When Baseball Wasn't White. The author's name escapes me at the moment, but it'll come to me in a second. When Baseball Wasn't White. And this cat, it hasn't been out that long. University of Nebraska Press, maybe 2014, 2015, I'm trying to remember. But at any rate, what he writes about is, in the 1860s, you know where a lot of people learned baseball? When they was in the military. These soldiers were playing baseball. They're inventing the game. Like, y'all know that Abner Doubleday stuff and now it's kind of, these legends. And black people, now y'all know damn well. Whatever their human activity is, if black people start doing it, they can do it as well as anybody, in many cases better. So they start mastering the hell out of uh, 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 baseball. In fact, there's a brother named Moses Fleetwood Walker. Go get this book, The Divided Heart of Moses Fleetwood Walker. He was an early baseball player. Now we're talking about the 1860s, the 1870s. So the Civil War is going on. And these baseball players and athletes really up until the end of Jim Crow. This is a little delicate. I'm going to say this quick and we keep moving. Maybe we need to do a whole thing on this. Athletes for generations in black community and segregated were also considered to be among the best everything. So if you were a great athlete, that meant you were a great scholar. You were a great servant. So you, you look at an Althea Gibson. Althea Gibson is a little bit of a mixed bag, but she was good at a number of things. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, coming out of Florida, well, did she go to FAM? Yeah, because she came up through the Black Tennis Academies, right? There's a new book on Althea Gibson, too, and I'm looking around here like I could spy it, but it's not the point. Um, Paul Robeson, I mean, you think about the people who, I mean, if you're an athlete, you're also expected I'm to be right. Oh, Arthur, Arthur Ashe for sure and tennis of course beautifully example you got black people of means black doctors black lawyers this black elite who do what we're going to make black spaces for these children to learn the game of tennis it's very important you had a whole black in fact uh, Calvin Sinet did a book called Uneven Lies where you had the black golf 
people. I mean, you know, so it ain't, it ain't, you know, I'm against golf. I'm against tennis. No, no, no. It's not about you driving the president of the United States around the golf cart. What did you do for the rest of these black people? So anyway, leave that alone. Cause you know, new ancestors should be venerated, venerated ancestors. I'm very careful to walk that line. Cause again, everybody sacrifices one way, one way or another. This isn't an indictment of anybody. It's just a, a, a recognition that it's the changing same. If we don't know, we think things are changed and some things have, but the changing same means that the patterns haven't changed. So at any rate, you're just curing amnesia, Doctor. That's it. That's all. No, yeah, we we just trying to do that, right? Yeah. So Moses Fleetwood Walker was good at a number of things. One of the things Moses Fleetwood Walker was in was on the debate whether we should leave or whether we should stay. In other words, he's thinking about immigration too, with an E, meaning leave. Do we do Haiti? Do we go to Africa? He's a great baseball player. Octavius Cattle in 1867. When we see our young brother, he is the captain of the Pythian Baseball Club. And at that point, they didn't have baseball, wasn't one word, baseball. <laughs> the Pythians were like the baddest black team in Philly and according to the uh, contemporary accounts, one of, if not the baddest black team in the country. They had a Negro League. Yes, they didn't call it the Negro League like Ruth Foster and them in 1920, but baseball was the national pastime. It came out of the Civil War White people playing baseball, Native Americans playing baseball, black people playing baseball, mostly white and black. And white and black people are looking at baseball as a thing that might be a common thing that could maybe be one of the threads to create a country because it wasn't no country before 1860. You can't have no damn country and we all enslaved. And you might not have no country after that if you don't figure out a way for us to have a common cause because I'm looking at you still with suspicion. I just finished hearing the whip. Seems like the farther we get away from the whip, the crazier we get when with no memory. So at any rate, baseball has a potential. When this cat who wrote the book, um, uh, when baseball wasn't white, what he says is, you see baseball segregate at the end of Reconstruction. Why? Because the white North and the white South are going to kiss and make up. And if you think that's ancient history or that happened a long time ago, we didn't see it today. Look at every election since 1968, when the majority of white people in this country have voted for the increasingly white nationalist party, including the last election. In other words, we'll make up. <laughs> we'll make up. You know, no harm, no foul. Meanwhile, the rest of us is like, no. Well, no, that's not true. That's not true. Some of us with no memory are like, wait, what just happened? The rest of us who remember are like, when are y'all going to remember and use the momentum of memory to say, you got to build something different. You know when people give up reparations? When they're afraid you're getting ready to walk out the deal or you're about to take your money. You know when they're going to stop messing with the voting laws in the state of Georgia? When Atlanta-based Coca-Cola stops, which means when y'all stop drinking Coke, y'all better go listen to Dr. Martin Luther King instead of just going looking at the rock and crying on in January. Anyway, so he is a star. He's the second baseman on the Pythians and the star of the team because black baseball is huge. And it's now entering a universe where they're going to say blacks and whites can't play together. So Cato is like, cool, it's all right. It's all good. He's a second baseman. He also gets engaged. He's a he's in love. He's a, cat's in his 20s now. He he writes and he's engaged his sister named Catherine LeClown. Catherine LeClown, they in love. So let me, let me close this down. Let's fast forward. Fast forward four years. We'll fast forward to October the 10th, 1871. He's a teacher at the Institute for Colored Youth. Well, I should mention this. He didn't get to be the principal. You know who they hired? The great Fanny Jackson Coppin. Yes. The sister. 
Woo! Now that's a beast. We got we got to do a whole day on her. She she wrote a book. She wrote her memoirs. Of course, Coppin State. I was rocking Coppin last week in Baltimore. Named for her. Levi J. Coppin uh, was the bishop of the AME Church, the third or fourth bishop of the AME Church. But Fanny Jackson Coppin. Oh. Beast, the educator, and the principal of the Institute for Colored Youth. Uh, by the way, I should say this now, so I, we won't go back. Well, no, no, I'll end with Cato, and then I'll say, and then, we, then we'll, we'll wrap for now. Um, Cato is at school. This election day in Philadelphia. They think that all the black people in Philly are gonna vote for the Republican Party because at that point, the Democratic Party of the at that time, that was the white, they were the white nationalist party. See, white nationalism is a floating signifier. It can go to any political formation. Now it's in the Republican Party. Then it was in the Democratic Party. So those people saying, see, the Democrats, no, 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 no. White nationalism, bro. Read Ron Walter's book, White Nationalism, Black Interests. It can float. And right now it is staunchly in the party called the GOP. But at any rate, then it was in the Democrats. And so they not just to let black people vote. So they doing then what they do now, voter intimidation, you know, moving polling places, scaring people, trying to show up to be like, you know what I'm saying? So they, now, what they hear is, Cato is at school, he's teaching, the pupils are there, they hear it's going to be violence. And Cato gets a message from the white uh, leaders of the Pennsylvania National Guard saying, we calling up everybody. Cato lets the students go several hours early. Y'all got to get home, got it home safe. He tells us, you know, his fellow teachers out, look, we're going to make sure we get these kids get home safe. Cattle is like, let me be careful out here in these streets because I'm getting ready to go to my boarding house, get my uniform, everything, because we got to go out here now and stand guard. It's election day. These white boys out here tripping. So what does he do? He stops at a pawn shop to buy a pistol because a pistol is part of your uniform. And he didn't have a firearm at that time. So he goes to pawn shop, buys a pistol. He's in South Philly. He's walking back, getting ready to, you know, go to boarding house, get his stuff. So he went, and he encounters this white boy named Frank Kelly. Frank Kelly been out here shooting at black people, chasing black people. The accounts kind of differ, but what is clear is by the time the smoke clears, most people from the testimony, because they put him on trial, of course, by the time Cato uh, passes Kelly in the streets, Kelly says something crazy. Cato turns back. They exchange words, whatever. Cato turns back, apparently, and keeps walking. And that's when this punk shoots him in the back, kills him. 31 years old, Octavius Cato was slaughtered in the streets of South Philly, October the 10th. 1871. It is a true tragedy. Frank Kelly, of course, eventually is, he tries to elude uh, trial. He's disappeared for four years. He's living under a soon name, another state. They finally catch him, bring him back, put him on trial. All white jury, not guilty. The changing same. Six days later, October 16, 1871, Octavius Cato was given a hero's funeral. Because he is a member of the National Guard, they have it at the arm armory. In Philadelphia, and it is one of, if not the largest, funerals in the history of the city up to that date. Because this man is a hero. I didn't even get into him challenging the streetcar laws. I didn't get into half of his life. Y'all got to read. Cato was a. I didn't get into him being on the same speaking platform as Fred Douglas. I didn't get into him. In fact, his fiance lives to 1911. She eventually teaches at a school named for him. I said fiance because. He didn't live to get married, and she never married. Mm. See, this is the thing, man. Ugh, let me just... Mm. I don't forgive nothing. Do you understand why I went to graduate school? It wasn't to go be a Negro to go some... So you're looking, I have five books, and I'm on the bestseller list. <laughs> be like me. Hell no. This is a blood debt. 
Do you understand? <laughs> Somebody sacrifice for all of us. And we're going to run on ahead and then turn back around and see, see, you could be like us. No, hell no. We know how this works. Pet Negroes ain't nothing new. They had pet Negroes during enslavement. Come on now. We got to understand, unless you are moving to get everybody in the same direction. So Octavius Cato, I'll end with this. This is where I, that's what I said I was going to say before, but I'll say it after. I said the last thing. Octavius Cato. Oh, by the way, Derek Chauvin, the trial is supposed to start. Yes. Uh, the George Floyd thing. Just so y'all know, uh, the, the judge in the uh, Derek Chauvin trial uh, there in Minnesota, um, they are, it looks like uh, his ruling at, this, at, the, at the court level is going to be appealed because he ruled, see what they're trying to do now, keep Ellison and them, is trying to charge this man with third degree murder. Right now he's charged with second degree murder and he's, he's charged with second degree manslaughter. But they want to charge him with third degree murder as well to give the jury options. What they really trying to do is prevent what we all know is probably going to have. They're going to let this boy walk. Understand. So, you know, if y'all think that somehow, some kind of way, uh, Frank Kelly is not alive, he is alive. He's in the jail now called Derek Chauvin. Y'all understand how this works? So at any rate, his son is Kyle Rittenhouse. They all the same. Come on now. So. What's going on now in Minnesota is that's probably going to be appealed. Jury selection is supposed to start Monday, but it probably will be delayed because the court, the appeals court is going to have to rule. And what they are saying is, you know, you trial court judge are going to have to cons consider reversing your decision not to allow the state's attorney to charge Derek Chauvin with third degree murder. Because typically, third, like second degree murder is kind of depraved mind murder. In other words, you got to almost prove this guy really came in. I'm going to kill George Floyd. I mean, you see, that's going to be hard. That's when that charge would be like, so people out there in the street, like second degree, it should be first degree. No, all the lawyers is like, no, mm -mm, y'all got to understand this. The higher the charge, the less likely they're going to convict him. Because you, if you go first degree murder, that's damn, that's damn near like, I got up this morning thinking about George Floyd and I came in and I said, if I could put my knee on his neck for eight minutes and 43, you can't, don't, look, this is America. There ain't no justice. Justice will be, will be alive. Go ahead, Karen. No, they, there was a poll that came out this week, you know, uh, on the heels of the murder of George Floyd, 60% of Americans thought it was murder. That now is down to 36%. Here we go. So y'all get your minds right now. Don't get mad. Oh, John Henry Clark, you say, don't get mad, get smart. You understand, no question. That's right. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. So anyway, let me wrap this right quick and I'll finish with Cato. So I'm just mentioning this in terms of the trial because they let Cato's killer go. This is the way the system is set up and it ain't just got set up like that today. So at any rate, so what they want to do is charge with third degree murder. The trial court judge was like, nah, Judge Cahill was like, yeah, I reject you. Uh, I reject that because in this state, typically third degree murder, I'm sorry, yeah, third degree murder, what they want to charge him with, that's usually something that's usually um, uh, affiliated with or tied to the idea of something that was reckless, something that, but something that was reckless toward a group, like driving your car into traffic or something like that. It doesn't apply to individuals. Mm. But watch this. Well, watch this. Do you know that there's one policeman that was charged with third degree murder in, in Minnesota and recently convicted of third degree murder, which is usually reserved for uh, something that you do to a group? But he, but his conviction at the court of appeals level, which is now will probably be appealed to the Supreme Court, but still his conviction at the district court level, at this trial court level that was that was uh, confirmed by affirmed by the court of appeals, his conviction was for killing an individual, a, a policeman. 
His name was Muhammad Noor. Yes. He's black. And he killed a white woman. Oh, shit. Oh, no. We good then. Guilty. <laughs> now, here's how the thing could backfire. Because now Keith Ellison is like, oh, no, we got a president, bro. You can charge for third degree. You can charge a cop with third degree murder for killing an individual. Y'all did it to the black man. Ooh. The trial court judge is like, what? Hold on, Derek. I got you. No, because see, the Supreme Court of Minnesota could overturn that. And if they overturn it, that means that, you know, you shouldn't have charged this. The Court of Appeals in Minnesota is like, bruh, nah, don't consider what might happen. You need to reconsider whether or not you're going to let the state's attorney charge Derek Chauvin with third degree murder. All of that to say that it's supposed to be trial. So uh, jury selection start uh, on Monday. It's probably going to be delayed because they're going to make this man rethink that. But the reason that they're going to make him rethink it in part is because then I already said, yeah, an individual can be charged. And it's something that this black man that killed a white woman who they who they put in jail might be the point of entry. <laughs> now, you know, those are, those are my uh, very good friends and lawyers who are lawyers, particularly those in, in Minnesota, are very clear that this cuts every which way. It's good for the defense. Because, you know, it's a little bit more time for them to think through their strategies. It's good for the prosecution, because obviously, if you can get third degree murder, you give the jury more options. There are probably going to be some non-white people on the jury, given the makeup of the county, Hennepin County. And it's probably going to be some, you know, but don't get y'all hopes up that this white man going to be killed. You saw like Frank Kelly shot Octavius Cattle in the back. So this is where I am with Cattle. That's why I said I wanted to put that footnote in. So we spoke about Chauvin. Um. Once I found out about Octavius Cato, man, whew, I couldn't get enough. And, you know, all the places in Philly where he worked, where he lived, you know, many of those places are still around. He was the recording secretary of the Banneker Institute. One of the things my man Charles Bloxon and his colleagues did over the last several decades, they made sure they had historical markers all through Philadelphia. And the next generation of people who were influenced by Charlie Bloxon, like my friend Kalita Nichols Fairfax in Virginia, who on the State Historical Commission. You know, it's important, y'all, to put these monuments. So wherever you are, get a monument, put it up. Because you want your school. I mean, there's a monument in front of the Institute of Colored Youth Building. Said, this is where the Institute, oh, by the way, the Institute of Colored Youth, this is where I'm ending. The Institute of Colored Youth changed its name. It changed its name when one of the Quakers donated some land in Chester County, Pennsylvania, and they moved it out there. And the guy's name who donated the land, his name was Cheney, white Quaker. Cheney University, that's why it calls itself the oldest HBCU in the country. It wasn't started as a university. That's why Lincoln, which was Ashman Institute, very near there calls itself, but you know, they have a friendly rivalry, but let's be clear. The iterations that became Cheney began in the 1830s as the Institute for Colored Youth, and that's the Institute that uh, Octavius Cato uh, uh, taught at, which is why when we have freedom school training, when we would go out to Cheney, we always try to go to HBCU, Shaw, Lincoln, Cheney, all young people are from Philly, so we would go to Philly HBCUs when we could, and we went to Cheney, we stayed there in the dorms, we had our sessions, we did our reading, that's when we were talking about, you know, the, the uh, uh, the deaths. This is like, like 2000, 2001. Early Sunday morning before we got on the buses to go back to Philadelphia. Let's get up early, just after dawn. We're going to get in a big circle. So there were probably maybe 150 of us. 
and we went out in the square where the oldest buildings are at Cheney, and we poured libation for Octavius Cato. Is this Octavius Cato school? This Fanny Jackson Coppin school. You young people from Philly, you are the heirs. You are the direct heirs of these Africans. What we're doing right now, we do in their memory, we do in their spirit, we do in the spirit of Charles Reason. We ain't got no good black newspaper to put all y'all grades in. Now, if y'all go back and look at them Ebony's in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, and if you look at the black newspapers in your city or if you're in the United States, you'll see sometimes they did put people's stuff. The Crisis Magazine was good, putting scholars on blast. We don't have that now, but we remember, we know. And then of course, they finally got that statue. And when they unveiled that, I wish I could have been there that day. I was here in DC, but my man, um, um, oh my God, I'm saying I'm blanking now. Oh, Anya Buile, Aaron Anya Buile Love, who is a, a professor at Community College of Philadelphia and one of our freedom schools uh, people for years, one of the staffers of freedom schools. He was there and he said they had the Masons because he's Prince Hall. You already know he was a Mason. You know, you had everybody there, the Sisters of the Order Eastern Star. And when they pulled that thing off, when y'all go to Philly and, and go to City Hall, the south-facing uh, front of City Hall, they got cattle emerging like he's like he's about to fly. And then they got like a streetcar thing. The brother did it out. I mean, it's, it takes up this whole, I mean, it tells all, you got a panel for the Institute of Color Youth. It's got the baseball. It's got how he fought the streetcar laws. It's got what happened to him in 1871 and the funeral. It is mag. Magnificent. It is magnificent. So Octavius Cattle, go look that brother. <laughs> and I love the love story. That love story. Um, oh my gosh. You know, because oh. you know, they like and we, we like to repeat the, the, the negativity. What'd you say? Boys and girls alike? Boys and girls alike. Someone Sounds like there's something on the narrative side. Some creative might decide they want to make something out of this, huh? Is that what you have in mind? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I know every every Saturday I'm excited to talk because I think in many ways we're also modeling how we should be communicated with one another. We don't agree 100% on anything. No one should. No. We should have, you know, healthy discourse. That's right. They didn't agree. That's right. You know, and, and when you talk about Cotto, um and, and, and the Douglas and all of the, you know, WB Du Bois, what was common? Even among the elite, most of them was that they understood that they were fighting for this thing for everybody, that none of us could be free if we weren't all free. And that commitment, even to the elite, which today I think many folk are lost, like you said, they'd rather be famous or, and, and, you know, listen, that money's good. Oh, no question. The money's good. The fame is good. It feels good to be liked. You know, in the day, what good is it? If there's just a couple of magical Negroes and y'all ain't even that magical. There were people way more magical. So I'm just grateful that we're able to unearth uh, or, you know, pay homage on these Saturdays to the folk who came before us to remember, to remember. To remember. And shout out to, and, and, and good work to, and also that ain't, you know, now, now you, in fact, Jacob Carruthers used to say this, the reward for good work is more work. So we don't just sit back, but I mean, Hey, it's great that LeBron, James, for example, has decided to make Nike outfit Florida AM's athletic teams. That's great. That's good. But you know, it's still Nike. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, you know, the changing same. They ain't never gonna miss no money. So understand. So you lose your platform. So I ain't mad at you, bro. And congratulations. But the reward for good work is more work. So, you know, as Stevie Wonder said, you haven't done nothing. 
we are not impressed and not amused <laughs> anyway so anyway so yeah let's bring this brother in uh, hey Deontay hey. from bc welcome yeah, yeah. To class and thank everybody hit that like button y'all hit the like button share subscribe. you know my, my, how are you my, brother mic check one two is my mic on the class clown is here i am present today <laughs> i see what's going on man how you no. doing Nothing, man. Look, Doctor. No, nah, we ain't got no, we ain't got no class clowns in this space. Even though you bring some levity, but uh, all the clowns outside. Now, what's yeah. going on, man? Nothing, Doctor. Con- Listen, I just first want to just tell you and uh, Professor Hunter, thank y'all so much for um, bringing these sessions every Saturday. I even got my wife hooked on Doctor Carr. Whoa. Um, yeah, and so she's upstairs. <laughs> she's upstairs now with my newborn. You know, watching on the big screen. And I know she down here probably psyched out that, that I'm down here talking to you. But you and I had connected on Twitter because I had actually come to my podcast. Oh yeah, um, yeah, we got it. Yeah, we got it. We definitely yeah. got to do that. Man. Yeah, just, just just go ahead and respond back to me whenever you get a chance. Okay. But um, Frederick Douglass, outside of his house, they have a, a plaque out there that says he was the sage of Southeast. Doctor Carr, you are the sage of the 21st century, brother. Oh no, brother! I, I mean, appreciate you, you saying that. We all together in this. I, you listen, know, I really appreciate you. And I got one question for you, though. Um, yeah. Your books—you have a lot of books. How do you study? How do you do? You read oh. everything from cover to cover, or do you just go and pick random chapters? Because I'm just amazed when I look at you. I look at you on Roland Martin. I look at you here on oh, Saturdays, yeah. and I see you pull books all the time. Um, how, how do you go about studying? That's a good question. Uh, Dante, first of all, you, you from D.C., man? I'm from D.C., yes. You born and raised. Yeah, so uh, you've been over there at Cedar Hill many times. You southeast? I, I used to work in southeast. Now I'm in northeast now working. Oh, yeah. So you know very well then Cedar Hill where uh, Douglas's house is. And then you call my man Willie Wilson right down the street. Yep. <laughs> you know, you know, and then across, of course, the irony of having the Frederick Douglass projects <laughs> right yes. there. On the yes. Fred Douglas, you know, I mean, so <laughs> no, but, but when, when when they call him the Sage of Southeast or the Lion of Anacostia of any of the yeah. number of names, you know, yeah. Douglas. is such a fascinating figure. And then so you asked me you know, how, how I study. And uh, yeah, we're gonna do the bi- podcast, brother, for sure, for sure. Um, you take, for example, like if this plague hadn't hit, I probably go over to Cedar Hill, maybe at least a couple of times a year. Check out the book, the bookstore, have conversations with the rangers. You know, a lot of our uh, folks, particularly at the black sites, they're young black folk who work as park rangers. Shout out to Elizabeth Clark Lewis, who's head of the public history program at Howard University, has trained so many of them. Uh, Ashley Robertson. I think about my dear friend Joy Kennard, Dr. Joy Kennard, who's at the Charles Young House out in Ohio, who used to be over the Mary Clyde Bethune House here before she took over the region, that region of the National Park Service, which means she was responsible for Carter G. Woodson's house and Mary Clyde Bethune's house. Just a lot of young people, particularly young sisters who are in the Park Service, who have done work. Um, and Ashley did actually a good book called Mary McLeod Bethune in Florida, which is an important book because she was with the Bethune House, which is Bethune Cookman now has, has the house in charge of the house. But at any rate, I would go out there a couple of times a year, you know, maybe probably more, but at least a couple of times a year, check out the books or whatever. And every time I go, I take the tour. And, you know, I like to be incognito, as we call it, you know. So, you know, I've got my hoodie. I'm chilling. Oh, by the way, I, I, I wore my hoodie again for the uh, Dallas County Voter Rights League. Uh, shout out to um, Senator Hank uh, Sanders and his wife, uh, at one time, Representative Rose Teray. 
uh, Fire Rose to Ray because this, this is the weekend of the Selma Jubilee. Uh, so this is the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. We're right in the first week of March. And I say that because uh, the, the Courageous Eight, as they were known, y'all, we talked about that book when we talked about when John Lewis and uh, and C.T. Vivian made transition. Uh, one of the great Courageous Eight, Frederick Douglass Reese, Fred, I thought about Fred Douglas and said Fred Douglas made me think about it. Fred, Fred D. Reese, uh, they just uh, made, I think they made March 15th in Selma, Frederick Douglas Reese Day. He made transition in um, a couple of years ago in his late 80s. But I'm just mentioning that because, again, those names, Amelia Boynton Robinson, who lived at like 104, I was just rereading her piece. So in terms of study, study is a lot of times it's about repetition. It's about rhythm. It's about momentum. And so. I go to a place like Douglas, I'm taking the tour again, I'm listening to the Rangers, everything I've heard before, mention most of it, but then I'll think about it differently because I'm hearing it again. And, and part of Douglas's house, they got his parlor where his books are and everything. They'll take you in there. You don't get a chance to touch the books. They got the ropes up, whatever. They say, this is part of Fred Douglas's library. So I'm looking and there's two titles I see up there that I didn't recognize the last time I was here because in between the last time I was here and this time I've read more. So the study process, I think, and this is where narrative is, is so important what we're doing when you see these conversations now you know when i was listening to john clark and he'd be in a lecture i'm at first world on 145th and convent in harlem or he came out to ohio or i caught him somewhere else you know and he's talking i'm writing i would usually have a tape recorder a little handheld tape you know cassette recorders used to have but i would be writing too because part of the thing about writing while somebody is talking and we have a conversation is that you're thinking about things too and you're putting them in real time then when you go back and listen you remember what you were doing at that time. Part of study is about location. So it's about the smells, it's about the taste, the sights. The, the, so for me, there are certain things I'm gonna think about based on where I am physically at a moment. So right now, for example, when I'm talking about Freddie Douglas's house, I go immediately in my mind to what I was thinking uh, when I took my mother there for the first time when she came up to visit. I also go back to standing in the in the, in the the foyer the first time the, the, ranger, the ranger talked about how this is where Douglas died as he, he was getting ready, he had come back from a speech, he was getting ready, to make, and he just kind of dropped right there. You know what I mean? So those things. And then that takes me to, oh, and then we went to the bookstore. That's when I bought that copy of, it all ties together. So how the books are, work, very simple. You know, I buy books one at a time, half for now the better part of 40 years. And you count comic books more than that. But when you invest in a, a library, in building your library, whether you got a thousand books or one book, Reading leads you to other things. With the internet now, it's much easier. And in some ways, I'm glad that as we're in this space, that it wasn't a space available to me as I was building my chops and apprenticing, most importantly, with elders who built their chops. In fact, this is how I'm going to tell you all right quick. This is a 30 second story. Let me put my timer on. Uh, this is how Charles Bloxon and I met. I knew who Charles Bloxon was because I'd read about him in a book called Black Bibliophiles and Collectors, edited by my man, Paul Coates. Uh, and Eleanor DeVerney Sinet and the, the wife, by the way, of Calvin Sinet. Both of them were friends with uh, with uh, with Malcolm X. Uh, Calvin Sinet was a medical doctor, is a medical doctor. Eleanor DeVerney Sinet is going to take me 30 seconds to tell this part of the story, was uh, uh, a librarian at the Moreland Spingarn Center, was where she and Paul met. A brilliant sister. She wrote a biography on Arturo Schomburg called Schomburg. The third person, my man, Thomas Battle. Uh, who was the director of the Moreland Spingarn Research Center at uh, Howard University at the time. I, I wasn't at Howard. I was a graduate student at the time. But I read that book, which was uh, the conference proceedings of book people. Paul had a, a piece in there. Uh, and Charles Bloxon 
had a piece in there. I read it when I was in Ohio, I was in grad school, and I read about Charles Blocks and collecting books. When I uh, entered the PhD program at Temple, one of the first things I said is, I gotta go meet Charles Bloxon. So I would sit in the main room of the Bloxon collection because he donated his books to, to Temple, and then they gave him a job as a curator. He followed the Schomburg model. He was friends with Dorothy Porter Wesley. That's when I met Miss Wesley, was through Charles Bloxon. He introduced us. We, I traveled with him, and we got a chance to sit with her. But at any rate, he would bust in asking for a book. There was a sister still there, Ethiopian sister. I love her very much. My my dear friend Eslaku Bahanu. Eslaku was the librarian at the uh, at the at the, at the Bloxon collection at Temple, and a brilliant librarian, and now a book collector. Mr. Bloxon is not a librarian; he's a book collector. He collected all these books, so he knows what he's looking for. So he would come in from his office, which was on the other side of the hall. He was like, Eslaku, uh, I need a I need a copy of a, uh, and then she would go get it. He take it and go. He working on something, right? So I would come in to study between my classes in graduate school, it was my first semester. So I'm sitting there, it's like 1992. So I'm sitting there and he busted in one day. Damn, it's Charles Boxing. I ain't say nothing, you know. Cause what I'm gonna say, oh, I'm a fan. No, everybody calm down. I mean, I'm here, I'll see him. So then one day he came in, I'm there. And we would come in, he noticed I always be in there as he's sitting there reading. One day he came in and asked her, oh, I knew this book, uh, Hubert Henry Harrison. And uh, oh, what's the name of that book? And I said, it's either When Africa Awakes or The Negro and the Nation. Those are his essays, right? He looked at me. What you know about Hubert Henry Harrison? I said, those are his collection of essays, right? It's Garvey's man. At that time, the only place you could get Hubert Henry Harrison's uh, collected essays published was a brother named E. Curtis Alexander out of Virginia. He would reproduce the books that were out of print. You couldn't get anywhere. This is before the internet blew up and this kind of thing. You know, you had to get them. And I spent all my little graduate school money. E. Curtis Alexander. E. Curtis Alexander, by the way, you may not know that name, but you know his son's name, Kwame Alexander, the children's uh, uh, book. For, I mean, yeah, his daddy. In fact, he wrote Booked, one of the YA fiction. That's really him growing up with his pops. I mean, I love Curtis. It's the man, Bob Curtis. So at any rate, Bloxon looked at me. What do you know? He said, come with me. We went over the other side. Damn, we can read really sit with Charles Bloxon. In his office, he had these busts, Toussaint Louverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, Henri Christophe, the trio, right? We didn't even talk about the Haitian Revolution. We had to do that maybe next week. Oh, that would be good, Karen. We should do the Haitian Revolution next week. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Anyway, me and Bloxon, thick as thieves, when he wrote his memoir, Damn Rare, he would workshop language in it for me. I ended up working for Charles Bloxon, off the books. Meaning, what did that mean? That mean I would come in. He would say, come over, come over, come on, Greg, come on. We sit down. He started talking. I started talking. He started jotting down ideas. He's working, he's working on his memoir, working on his memoir. And then he would say, Man, I, I, I need to give you something. Sometimes he would try to give me money. I said, Oh, Mr. Black. He said, Oh, you take this money because I know you're going to buy books. Then other days he would come in. He have a couple of books here. My first Frederick Douglass, him, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Mr. Bloxon, I can't, but see, Bloxon started collecting books in the 40s. Bloxon, Bloxon, oh my God, Phyllis Wheatley's letters. I mean, the Charles Bloxon collection, if you don't know it, please look, my dear friend, Diane Turner is the director now of the Charles Bloxon uh, collection. He's got a collection at Temple. That's his main collection. He got a collection at Pennsylvania State University in the Paul Robeson building. Robeson was his hero. So, I mean, that's a whole nother thing, whole other strip. Anyway, I started to say this as a background in terms of the study process. He and I would go book hunting sometime. He'd take me with him. Let's go. Because see, the thing about old school book collectors, you're not really competing with them. 
because you look at this stuff, you say, I'm gonna buy this. Why? Because they already got that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and, and my thing is there's a, there's rules, you know. I mean, you know, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, the ferocity with which book collectors collect in the words of the great Christopher Wallace, I've been in this game for years. It made me an animal. It's rules to this shit. I wrote me a manual. But anyway, there's some 10 collecting commandments. You know what I'm saying? So at any rate, the manual, when you were an elder like that, you let them go first. It's no question. It's no question. It's what you do. Then, you know, and then they're going to bring you into the thing. So the more books I got, the more I read, the more I read in the books, the other books I needed. So how you study is you link what you know to what you don't know, and you don't do it all at once. When Karen, Professor, when you talk about going down rabbit holes, that's really the process of what might be called accretive learning. You're building it little by little. So today, I'll end with this. Today, y'all know we don't plan this. So Professor Hunter was like, although I'll say this for the narrative folk, it's very different on the other side. See, we getting ready to do something. We were doing something else. You know what I'm saying? I'm letting y'all know. So uh, she said, you know what? She she mentioned to me, oh, the Cato, you know, I was talking. To, I said, oh, Cato, no problem. So I go back to revisit the big joint, right? That I moved again, tasting freedom. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I go back to the big joint, right? And so when going back to the big joint, it reminds me of all those experiences. I'm back in the square pouring a libation with cattle. I'm standing in front of the cattle statue. I'm going out to Camp William Penn where they recruited these brothers to be in the U.S. colored troops. I and mean, with all the places we've been, I'm sitting there across from the Institute for Colored Youth Building or across from the Banneker Institute sign. I'm back in Philly and I'm remembering. But as I'm remembering, there are things I know now that I didn't even know then. And so I'm going back. So I go over a page, that's gonna send me over here. That's gonna send me over there, little by little. I remember from reading, rereading Biddle and Dubin that W.E.B. Du Bois devoted three pages, three pages to the murder of Octavius Cato in his book, The Philadelphia Negro. So that sent me another room to my Du Bois stash. Let me reread this Du Bois piece. And so when you do it like that, it's reminding you repetition. It's extending you and you let the text talk to you and it's reminding you and doing that, extending you as you revisit the places you were the last time you had the conversation. That's all memory is, is repetition. It's, it's repetition. And relationship and experience. Um, yes. As you said, this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, no. we're, we are uh, 50 plus years of lived experience. We have different experiences, which is why this dance is hard to duplicate because first we both come to it humbly. But also, you law degree, PhD, the the thirty plus years of media and the people you know is storytelling. It's is remembering all of the stories and how. It plays. And I think you said something really important about reading and rereading. You know, I often talk about Beloved and when the light bulb. I wasn't ready for Beloved in my twenties. I don't know why they even assigned it. <laughs> Ain't nobody grown enough to read Beloved in they eight when they're 18, 19, 20. You gotta. Live some life to understand what Toni Morrison was saying. Was Isn't Zoom it true? It was, yes. You got to live some life. And unfortunately, people want everything microwave. This ain't. This is a process. I always tell my students, perfection is a process. Give yourself some time to get there. Give yourself some time. <laughs> and, and once you've acquired that time, don't be to, to the point. Don't you making don't one of the points. Don't be um, the ancient Egyptians said this in, in Tao Tep. Don't be arrogant with your knowledge. 
the, the Egyptians in that text say good speech, which means the highest form of human creative expression. Uh, Tawatep says good speech can be found among the maidens pounding grain. In other words, you pass by these sisters working and you think they ain't got nothing to say. No, good speech just comes from experience. It comes from experience. And when you find yourself in war, what Jacob Cruz would call intellectual warfare, fight. That don't mean lose your mind. That's why I quote that biggie. Karen Hunter, you've been in this game for years. <laughs> it, made, it made you an animal. It's rules to this. In other words, people just show up and say, oh, look. Mm -mm. No, 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 no. No. Uh, and, and you need to do the, uh, what is it? The 10 uh, collector's uh, commandments. You need to come up, somebody got to remix that on the narrative site. That'll be good. Somebody do that. <laughs> I do it. Number one, I love it. And listen, De Deontay, uh, let me bring you back in. Thank you for that question. Thank because, you, because it was a deeper question. Last time you talked about Carr, how you, Dr. Carr, you used a little timer to read through these books, you know, and you would flip the timer, you read a little bit, you come back, you read the next right. book. That was processed. This was more important because there's levels to this. There's a layer here. Yeah, levels. Too. In fact, I don't. In fact, I'm glad you said that. Okay, and actually, uh, uh, Deontay, Deontay, this is good. The like last week, for example, when in the middle of the night things, I'm, you know, I'm it's got out of class. I'm thinking about how I'm gonna get ready for tomorrow. This kind of thing. So sometimes I got to de-link. So I said, let me just turn on some. And so I was looking at uh uh. Uptown Saturday Night. Oh yeah, I love that movie. Cartier, and uh, now now I'm thinking about there's a book called See The World. You already know, brother. <laughs> Come on, man. Oh my God. Uptown, Uptown Saturday Night. And you remember Flip Wilson? Yes, sir. <laughs> At the end, they got that rocking version. How I got over. My soul looked back and wonder how I got over. Ships. You, sir, you already know. So you remember Flip Wilson was the preacher at the mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking, I'm like, damn, Flip Wilson. I thought to myself, let me go in here and see if I, because, you know, I'm always everywhere looking for books. And, you know, there's been a couple of books on Flip Wilson, but I like this little book. It's called Flip Wilson Close Up. Right, so it's talking about Flip Wilson because a lot of people don't know Flip Wilson. Right? It's, a, it's like a children's book because during that period, like here he is with Ed Sullivan. Right, people, some somebody saying, "Who is Flip Wilson?" Well, you need to know he got you know at the Emmys and all this kind of thing. Very important. But to to point Karen's face, I knew that if I sat here and reread this Flip Wilson book, it would take me out of. I was just watching up, so I went up, got it, and I said, "Man," I said, "Hold on, five minutes." <laughs> so I sat in here. I started reading, and when it stopped, I looked, finished the sentence, put it down. Why? Because I got the book. That ain't what I was doing, but I just like to remind. And what this does is it frees me from the, the, it frees me from the idea that that is the, um, that there's no term to it. There's no end to it. So what time should do, we have to order time. Time exists without us. We exist in time. And so we have to think about time as something we need to understand how to utilize. Because if we don't, then time will just pass through us and it will be like without beginning or end. It will be without beginning or end, which it is. But how we experience time is different than time itself. It's kind of timeless. And so timely, So that's why I use this. It gave me a bracket. And then I remembered something about Flip Wilson and kept going. <laughs> so anyway, which is why it is so important that we pass these batons 
Because yes. we ain't got all the time, but collectively we have all the time. That's right. Let That's right. Brother, brother Chris is ready. Is he ready? He's just, it's just like a blank screen. See, I, I said be ready. All right. Let me. Uh, be also ready, as the Bible said. There he is. Oh, wait. All right, all right. Let me add him. All right. Boom. All right be ready. Always yes. be, be ready. Christopher from North Always Carolina. Well, CB2? Is that yeah. it? So there's a CB, there's a CB senior. Yes, sir. There is. There is. All That's right. Good. I just wanted to mention. Wait, what part of Carolina are you in, brother? Raleigh. Raleigh. Yeah, but uh well, you in the capital. Johnson County. It's spread out throughout. But you know, I uh my grandfather and my grandmother, they're from New York. Family in East Orange, family in Maryland. So we up and down the East Coast. Yeah, we. Oh, that's beautiful, brother. So you all, yeah, man. Look, I haven't been in Raleigh in a minute, but uh, of course, that's where Anna Julia Cooper is buried. And St. Aug. In fact, last time I was in St. Aug, I had to stop by the by the cemetery, man. In fact, Shaw, we had Freedom School training down there because that's where they started SNCC. We had to go there. We're gonna have Freedom Schools. We can handle Freedom Schools and not go to Shaw. So, man, how y'all doing down there? All right, Chris. I'm gonna ask you a question. Chris, I'm gonna ask you to ask your question quickly because your internet is shaky. Oh, okay, my bad. That's on me. That's on me. I'm sorry, Karen. Yes, that's good. I'm looking his his is moving all over, so I just wanted wanted to ask. Okay, my bad. Yes, I got it on the thing. Let me stop moving. But so my question, Dr. Carr, is <clears throat> black people. We always seem to get in trouble when we around white people. So what's the practicality of us? You know what I mean? Like going over here, being by ourselves, doing our own thing, and then creating a hub where everybody can come in. Like the capital cities, we can come in, mingle with each other, and then we go our separate ways. You know what I mean? So you have sort of like yeah. a, a hexagonal, you know, and then the center is, instead of having the center be the economic paradise, and you put the black people on the outside so they can peer in and see what they'll never attain. And let's just have that, you know, that outside, because I think specifically of Raleigh. So Raleigh downtown, obviously, that's where all the money is focused, all of the, yeah. the economic drive, the banks and everything. But on the outskirts, so Wendell, Nightdale, all of these different places here, this is where larger black populations, and they do fine. And I, I mean, I wanted to ask a question about coming to America because that was a very black movie, hilarious, right? I don't, I know, I didn't see one white lady in there, the white guy that was the, the captain. Like, cool. Okay. Here you live here, you live here, you live here, and then when well, we need to do business for change, we can come together in the middle. We all separate in place to represent groups to come in, you know. And I say to somebody, I know two, I know you know, a few uh, PWIs and then one quote unquote minority, minority, but it was all the same, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. Chris, I say this very quickly, brother. First, let's start with coming to America as an example. Uh, remember, uh, this has been over a year before the plague hit. And I was talking with uh, another son of North Carolina. His father's people from North Carolina. Autumn preachers in his family, Nick Cannon. And Nick and I were talking. And Nick is, man, you know, whatever challenges he has been facing down over the last year and triumphing over in my mind, you know, the brother is a reader. I can tell you from when 
we were together when he was an undergrad at Howard and he's going on graduate school now. You know, anything I asked him to read or we talked about, and he said, let's go read this. We would read it, man. He was he was voracious and continued to read and explore. And he doesn't throw people away, which I think is a very important issue because a lot of it's character too. Character at the end of the day is really all we all have, you know. So anyway, we were talking and Nick said he he was down on the sound stages, Tyler Perry Studios. And of course, that's where they shot coming to America. So everybody kind of knows that if you don't know with all the sets, what you're watching, that's Atlanta and it's Tyler Perry. It's black owned. And there was a there's a very famous thing. Y'all see it over there on social media, YouTube, whatever. When they they wrapped some scenes, they were doing some reshoots or they were doing some. And I guess Will Smith was down there doing something and people uh, Martin Lawrence and them doing something. Maybe I don't know what they were doing. But anyway, they came out of the soundstage. And here's Eddie Murphy. You know, here's Sherry Headley who played, you know, his wife. Who Here is, uh, here's, uh, you know, Wesley Snipes and them. And you just see them all in this moment of just working actors, comedians, clowning each other, Tracy Morgan and them. And, and you realize this is a space Black people control and own. Now, when Wesley Snipes invested some money when the New Obians were buying land in Georgia. You know, this is one of the things that the social structure, the feds came to go after him after he had paid accountants like everybody else with a lot of money to handle this business. And then, he, you know, he writes the check for whatever he had owed to turn revenue, but they still put him in jail. It wasn't about, you know, they persecuted Wesley Snipes, let's be clear. But he was attempting to do some of that black self-determination stuff in his generation. And so now we have Tyler Perry, whatever you or I or anybody else think of his creative work, of Medea or any of this network shows or whatever with those resources, creating a space where something like that can happen, where you can employ black people behind the camera. And, and I know, listen, I've heard, I've read, I've studied, I've listened very carefully to people who were in the know about the whole notion of not paying writers and union busting and stuff like that. It's all that's problematic. As, as Professor Hunter says, we have, we have challenges. We have to grow together. But one thing it's, 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 it's more ultimately, important for our people if we work through those challenges in conversation with each other in spaces we control so that this don't come to america now deal with the larger question you raised and think about durham if you all go back especially on the, the narrative side so you can get the books and get all the other stuff connected go go revisit when we talked a little bit about wilmington when uh we previewed what we're going to talk about i'm sure in one of the upcoming pieces which is what happened in uh in durham the durham plan uh Black control, business districts, the whole question of Black Wall Street, all these kind of things. These things we've kind of evoked before. But ultimately, what you're raising, I think, is a different kind of question, which is very important. How do we enter coalition politics, coalition work with other groups of people at our greatest strength so that we can do what is necessary for our advancement and also advance human beings, human society? First, it requires an us. That is not something that you can take for granted. In fact, you can't take it for granted. In fact, the notion of an us continues to fracture the farther we get away from the common oppression moment of enslavement. And then the echo and the reiteration of that oppression in apartheid or Jim Crow, as they may call it. I like to call it apartheid because I think language is important. And when you call it Jim Crow, it kind of makes a it narrows the lens and makes it more parochial to the United States. And I think one of the great problems we have in the United States as people of African descent is that we are encouraged, we are even required by some people to narrow our lens to an American context. And that flies in the face of our entire experience as black people in this country. And it flies in the face of human experience. Nobody else narrows their context, but they want the American Negro to think, oh, just in terms of America, Jim Crow. No, it's apartheid. 
because the South Africans came here in the 1920s and 30s to see Jan Smuts and them sent their people over here to study what y'all were doing with the American Negroes so they could set up bound to education. So if you can cross country lines, why in the hell would you expect me to cut off my cousins? It's utterly absurd. But at any rate, so when you think about this notion of narrowing the lens, we have to decide who we are. And that don't mean we all have a meeting and we all pick a name or is it after American? No, that means that clusters of us form a sense of common cultural grounding, what Jacob Carruthers and them would call worldview, world sense. And once you have that, then you begin to take action wherever you are with that in mind. Now, how does that translate in the physical, tangible world? You know, this, this past week, in fact, we were having this conversation in my introduction to African-American studies class at Howard. We were talking about the difference between grand marinage and petite marinage. Maroon, of course, from the Spanish for wild. The French adopted it. Marunage means to run away. These are runaways. They, they used to apply the word to wild animals. But then they said these are the black people who come off the boat, slit a throat and run out in the bush or who you can't eat no food they make because they may poison you. Maroon resistance. These are the resistors. Grand Marunage is when they were able to escape and create a place to live. The Haitian Revolution is probably is the greatest example of Grand Marunage. This is our place. That's why they continue to try to punish Haiti. We'll talk about that next week. Hopefully, that's what we do. Um, but, you know, Palmares and Brazil, so forth and so on. The Great Dismal Swamp here. And that's it. By the way, uh, Octavius Caddo, one of the things he was following in the 1850s was Martin Delaney writing every chapter of what became Blake in a newspaper called the Anglo-African, which also published stuff about the Caddo. It's very important. So at any rate, you have Grand Marunage, but then you have Petite Marunage. Petite Marunage is the scholars. I mean, people like to coin these terms. The academics got to get themselves something to do, right? So Petite Marunage, Little Marunage is when you on a plantation, but you escape the plantation for a day to go see your husband or your wife. Well, but they don't have any marriage certificates. We're not talking about the social structure. We're talking about the same structure that black people use to this day. Anybody got no paper, but everybody know who those two people are to each other. So, and then you come back before anybody knows you're gone. Or if you're in a space where they really can't do nothing to you, you go for a week, come back, and nobody say nothing. Just leave them alone, whatever everybody knows. That's, that's little maroonage. Now, what you, Christopher, it seems to me, you're talking about both. We have to have places we control, like narrative, so that when we're engaged in petite maroonage, like YouTube, then... You know, we're having this conversation and then we come on in the narrative and little by little, we continue to build the space we control. And then what happens? Let me make a reparations demand. They'll never give you reparations. Yeah. You know how you get reparations from an enemy? You make it too costly for them not to give reparations. And you can only do that by having an independent base. That's what the principle of boycott is about. But ultimately, that's really what the principle of building something is about. It's one thing to withhold your resources. It's another thing to control your resources. When you control your resources, people who have opposed you all of a sudden get a lot nicer. Don't think that all these black projects that are in uh, uh, non-black corporate spaces that are coming up are there because people all of a sudden got a conscience. Many of them are there because Breonna Taylor was killed and then big George Floyd took that and needed a neck 
y'all was getting y'all said you know what maybe we just need to go in and renegotiate the fundamental terms of america i know it's a pandemic but hell it's been a pandemic for me since the boat showed up burn it down next thing you know these nick rose is throwing projects and throwing money at hbcus please and that was just a little a little baby moment a baby moment imagine if you control some grand maroonage centers then your petite maroonage is strengthened because you can go in the room and say listen I need this job right now, but you know, I come from somewhere and I go back to somewhere. And ultimately, if things don't change around here, you might end up not having a company. Watch how quickly it moves. But you can't make no threat like that unless you got some place to go to and some place to return from. And so what you're talking about, I'll end with this. I'll end with this really for real, because I'm thinking about it now. You got me thinking about it. It's something I need to go back and rethink about because there's a lot of scholarship on this. There's a lot of Scott Dempsey Travis. Has written about the history of black businesses. Uh, Juliet Welker, Julia E.K. Welker, did some very good work on this. Uh, there's a there's a lot of different texts on this, but ultimately, the we're not talking about black control of everything. We're talking about all black everything. Because see, popular culture they'll give you that as long as they can get the money. That's why uh, what's the brother's name? The comedian, uh, the white comedian Louis, who who was in coming to America and Eddie Murphy and them said the reason it was in because the studio said you got to have at least one white character what Holly Greenman calls point of entry because white people are like why would I go see a movie with all black people and our response is we go see people with all white people all the time but we understand what you're really saying is y'all not human I got to have at least one human being so I can understand how to look at y'all I understand it's all good but in this latest iteration Louis, is, Louis Anderson is back of course because he's part of the original cast but we're not talking about all black everything in the white facing sphere and we're not necessarily talking about all black everything in the black spheres. But what we are talking about is black control, black consciousness, black memory, black debate in black formations, meaning something grounded. And for me, African worldviews, there's no one African worldview, but African worldviews and those spaces exist and we have to cultivate. All right. Thank you, Chris. Um... Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Appreciate you, Chris. Yeah, let me welcome in Brother Dennis. Dennis! From Vegas, and I'm going to ask, because time is time. We've been trying to do this, Dr. Carr. Shorter and shorter. I know this is on me. I keep, mm, we're going to make it shorter. But this, how, this is how you study. You are demonstrating one thread to the next in this reference and all of the names you drop, because that is how, I mean, it's instructive as hell. So I appreciate it. Appreciate you. But, all right. Hi. How you doing? I I'm promise, bro. I'm be quiet. I'm gonna let you go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna prom promise. Be brief, like like sister said. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna be quick with my question. I just wanted to say, my uncle told me to tell you hello. He called and uh, he appreciates you out of out of pain. He told me to tell you hello. I want to talk to you. Next please, time. man. Yeah, please yeah. tell him. Yeah, yeah. much respect. Yeah, he did. To the, he heard about elder. the show, but he uh he uh sends his regards. What I want to say was real briefly. My question is this, because I, I do have a little back issue with. Uh, with Wesley, we grew up in the same area and projects back in the Bronx when we when I was a kid back in Webster Avenue Project. He was a roommate of my of my ex-brother-in-law, my ex-wife's brother, their roommates at Purchase, upstate New York. SUNY Purchase, no get, question. Yeah, right. And Wesley used to get his mail sent to my to my mother-in-law's house. <laughs> okay. I don't want to tell that story. I ain't put this business. No, 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 out, no that's important, man. It just shows anyway, you we are a family. We all that's we all connected. We're all connected, okay? We're all connected. And Wesley would come to the house. And to my to my mother-in-law's house, pick up his mail. I see him. This this is back when he was still, when he was married to his first wife back in the early '80s. Um, but what I'm saying is that 
Um, I respect it, brother. I know what he did in, in Georgia because I lived in Atlanta during the time. So you're you right know about, about the, that. the whole thing. No you're question. Right. That's all correct. That's accurate. Yes, sir. My question is, is that what do what's what's your final synopsis on the movie as a whole? Come to America too. What's your synopsis? What do you feel? Um, you know, and Professor Hunter, come on in. We can handle this together. We gonna uh. Um, I don't want no parts of this. No, no. Reason I say is because, you know, one of the things about studying this goes back to the original first conversation. One of the things about studying is really listening. You know, we we think of listening with our ears, but we're pro we're, we're listening to speak. Anytime you're reading a book, you're listening. Really, you're listening to what somebody is talking about. They're talking, and you're also listening to all things that is making you think. So that kind of listening, the more we experiment with it think about it the more we can hear conversations mouth to ear with that lens that's another reason why listening to music is important particularly music by those who are listeners that's why for example the music that they call jazz you know when you hear uh Dizzy Gillespie or Mary Lou Williams when you hear Miles Davis talk about it or Terry Lynn Carrington they say music that we play is about listening if you know Robert Glasper and them cats if you you know if you're not listening You'll miss what the other person on the other instrument is saying to you and asking you to do now. Listen, oh, what? Oh, let me move. Okay, cool. Why am I saying that? I heard you, Professor Hunter, at the very beginning. You said we got to have things that we can laugh at. I'm listening like a former musician who was decent enough to play in Tennessee State's marching band and also knew music enough to know when to leave it alone to the masters. I was listening to you the way you had to listen to Thelonious Monk. I'm listening to what you said and I'm listening to the spaces in between the notes. So you asked me about coming to America. <laughs> I, I heard what you said at the beginning, Professor Hunter. <laughs> uh, and, and Dennis, thank you for the question. I contemplate this every day. You know, we, we both have standards. You know, even this space, you know, I, I contemplated should we have an intro, you know, because I'm a perfectionist. You are as well. You know, we in different ways. We have our, you know, we're very anal people, born two yeah. days apart. Uh, so we have similar. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but you know, some every now and then you just need to just have a space where we can just be. And I think in many ways, you know, I wanted to scrutinize, and I said, you know, it's so bad that it's good. You know, like if we're right. going to analyze it for filmmaking, for my, you know. I'm going to focus on Ruthie Carter. I'm going to focus on Wesley Snipes. And Leslie, you know, I'm going to focus on the great acting. I'm going to focus on the themes. You know, it's very, you know, very, you were just talking about the young man um, and the, you know, the the character, I don't want to give away too much, but the character that plays Eddie Murphy's son, you yes. know, beginning he's negotiating this job situation and they don't see him as a full human being. And, you know, these are the things, these themes that we deal with and then they have African royalty, people who have agency, who own you know, their own country. Uh, right. And, you know, uh, and, and even the conflict therein, you know, these are things that we're confronting and battling that we can glean from. And I, I just want to be in a space right now where we are inching, running, escaping to uh, a full sense of ourselves as, as a collective, as human beings first, you know, as Black people in the world. And the art the, the the things we read, what we digest, the music that we listen to should foster that freedom. That's so true. go back to the Sonia Sanchez, how do it free us? Well, you know, in this sense, it's just about laughter, letting our hair down. But I think we we spend 
to me, far too much time in those spaces of, of entertainment. And we run far too often, and which is why I wanted to bring Cotto into it. Because, yeah, he played baseball and he had a vast amount of leisure time. You and I both, you know, we, we watch a lot of trash television, uh, watch a lot of trash movies, read books, and have fun. Exactly. And that's good. So no but. You know, take it as you will. No judgment. Uh, but I'll do it for you. Well, let, me, let, me, let me add in addition, because what you said sets the framework for it. As, you, as, you, as you're talking, I'm thinking about what you're saying. I'm listening and I'm, I'm reflecting on, and I'm glad, you know, like I said, I was looking at Let's do it again. When you look at those uh those projects, particularly those three, let's do it again. Um Saturday night. Uptown that... Saturday night. And uh what's the one with, was that Jimmy Walker? No, yeah. Jimmy Walker. That was uh let's do it again. Um a piece of the action. That was the third. What you see Belafonte, Portier, Cosby, Cosby doing again. This is why we need the momentum of memory. Bill Cosby, everybody be quiet. Go back and look at the nature of comedy and box office work in the 70s. Just, just take those three films, which 30 years from now, people will be watching. 40 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, people will be watching. Maybe they will watch Coming to America. I'm not so sure about Coming to America, too, because, again, the sequel. This is a commercial enterprise. It's right. also an opportunity for folks to get together and clown. And we, I think a lot of people watching that will probably enjoy it more for the nostalgia than they will anything else. Right. Oh, how these guys the same age in the barbershop and that kind of thing, you know, joking, right? I mean, uh, sex with chocolate is back, that kind of thing. You know, ain't no, ain't, how can you even have spoiler alerts for something that's basically a revisitation of what happened decades ago? But in the, those three movies, what you hear is like, you take, let's do it again. When you see uh, when you see uh, when you see Uptown Saturday Night with Madame Zenobius, come on. By the way, come on. See, these are things common rapping about Zenobius. These are archetypes, and one of the categories that's why we created a category called Movement and Memory. You see, how did or do Black people remember anchor moments? Those films are comedy, you know, cussing, nudity. You could talk about, you know, the scripts and this kind of thing. But what you see, Geechee Dan, you know what a Geechee is? I mean, they're a little dry. In fact, in uh, in 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 uh, Let's Do It Again, you see Calvin Lockhart come in as the gangster and John Amos, 40 City Mac, uh, 40th Street Mac versus who? Biggie Smalls. Please understand the impact that you can have with comedy. And so when, you know, the first movie is set, in uh chicago and you see city partier working he's working in the meal mill and he comes home he got a he got a, a week off so cosby pulls up he's a cab driver so what you gonna do man let's go to madame zenobia's black zenobia running the place i'm telling you right they come in i mean it's a whole but, but it's funny because it's tapping into the cultural energy of that moment and then of course you come to the next one when you have uh uptown i mean uh, when you have let's do it again the first soundtrack is black. The second soundtrack is Atlanta. Let's do it again. You hear Mavis Staples. And then it's Ozzy Davis is over the lodge. They got to go make some money. Why am I saying all this? The popular culture we consume often reflects and then informs the culture of our people at that moment. If you want to know where black people are right now in terms of popular culture, contrast coming to America too. Coming America one, and then more importantly, contrast coming to America two with 
Uptown Saturday Night, and you will see. <laughs> Just sit there with, sit with it, laugh at them both, but ask yourself why you're laughing at certain things, why you needed certain other things to laugh to make you laugh, and then just sit back and reflect. In fact, I was never a Tracy Morgan fan because I thought it was a little bit over the top. And when you're in white face and stuff, like uh, what's that thing with Tina Fey? Whatever, I don't I can't watch that because it's minstrelsy in my mind because this is how y'all think black people are. I have seen. Tracy Morgan for me in Coming to America 2, I grew to have a better appreciation of Tracy Morgan after watching The Last OG. I would prefer to see Tracy Morgan in Brooklyn. And at that, I said, I ain't going to be so hard on Tracy because I think this is what Tracy Morgan would rather do. That stuff on 40 Rock, that's that white-facing minstrelsy. That's what we got to have spaces. We have a little bit more. And and maybe I'm completely off on that. But it's like it's a different vibe, you know? You're not. not. And and there's no coming to America one without which way is up. Oh, no question. So, we, you know, again, we have to. Let me me, me just one time. Richard Pryor vehicle, right? Come on. Who is in Uptown Saturday night? Sharp Eye Washington? Richard Pryor. They put, I mean, come on. Anyway, I just want to say, oh, man. But we can't start the story here without right. having. So that's why we do this on Saturday. That's so I, I want to say thank you. Everybody hit the like button. We're going to write this up. Uh, join narrative, K N A R R A T I V E dot com. Join it because we got some things to do and we don't want to depend on anybody to do them. I love you, Dr. Carr. Love appreciate you. you. Everybody in here, too. Thank y'all for the nice comments and et cetera, and the questions. Thank you, Brother Dennis, uh, for that last question. I'll see y'all next week. Dr. Carr, see you next week. See you next week. Love you.